0: Welcome, adventurers, to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome, adventurers, to episode 35 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. My name's Patrick. King Scott here. And today we have a massive adventure. By the time we're done today, you can expect enough dexterity and wisdom to perhaps level up yourself. We have some great recent adventures. Our timely 8 bit breakdown is going to be of Dune Imperium. Today's community discussion topic is all about introducing people to the hobby. But stick around because we follow that up with a long overdue revisit to Solo Land. Finally, We are perhaps saving the best for last. Our adventures on the horizon include an 18-card dungeon crawl called Hand of Destiny. Think like Palm Island. And then we also have a play of a game by Stan Kordonski. Now, Scott, this is a guy that brought us Dice Hospital, Rorik, Lockup, Paleo Endless Winter, and more. We're talking about a game Stan has in the works called Resurgence. To wrap up this big episode, we've completed 10 more reviews, Scott. You know what that means. Holy
1: cow. Yeah, we've got to pick our top five out of those last 10 then, don't we? Yes, yes, we do. Now, I know a ton of listeners are new to the show. Whether you joined the party during Aridia, Magical Friends, or Senjutsu, we're happy you're back for this quest. Level Up is a show made for gamers by gamers. We try to get a pulse of the community through the use of discussion and different polls on social media. And we even encourage listeners to submit their own audio. Mm-hmm. It's time to restock those arrows because this adventure is definitely going to be an epic one today.
2: Yeah,
0: it is. We, you know, we make every effort, Scott, to keep episodes right around that hour and a half mark. There's just too much to talk about today.
1: Yeah, it gets tough to do that sometimes, but we try our best. So I got some news. Oh, what do you got? Yeah. I joined Archmage Andrew. He's got, he started up a
0: podcast of his own. He's got his YouTube channel. I joined him for a video about the inception of Level Up and our influences. And a lot of it was geared towards like, what tips and tricks do you have for someone who wants to start their own podcast? Which it's like, well, we're not pros, but I guess it's pertinent (laughs) because we're still in that weird new
1: stage. We're going through those hiccups right now.
0: Yeah. He even gave me a game of naming three games within a genre, so he'd be like, okay, name a zombie game. You know what I did? I was like, okay, uh, Zombicide, Zombicide Black Plague, Zombicide Dark." I also came to find that the podcast setup of, like, furniture pads hanging around the room does not translate well to video, so we'll see (laughs) how Andrew (laughs) does with that hey, Senjutsu super funded.
1: Yes, that is awesome. I'm so happy for those guys. Whenever we had the interview with them, we talked through Mm -hmm. everything. You never know what's going to happen whenever that Kickstarter goes live. right? And just seeing what happened with that Kickstarter is absolutely amazing. They're going to pass a million bucks. I know. They're right on the edge of that right now, I think.
0: You do realize that one way to unlock a jade card for the monk, the Divine Intervention. Did you see what they did?
1: I believe it has something to do with us, if I'm yeah. correct.
0: we became a social stretch goal. How cool is that? And we're unlocked. The jade card, the Divine Intervention alternate art for the monk is unlocked because enough folks came by and gave a like to the Level Up Board Game podcast. So thank you to those of you listening who did that. If you're listening and you haven't liked us, get on over. Check us out on Facebook. Give us a like. It means a lot to us.
1: That is unreal. I I still can't get over the fact that people want to listen to us talk about games. (laughs) They tolerate
0: us. Hey, reinforcements funded. Did you see reinforcements there at like 300%? We talked about that one in an adventure on the horizon a couple of episodes Mm -hmm. ago. That still has about two weeks left. If you're listening while this episode uh, at the time of episode airing, we've got two more weeks on reinforcements. We've got another side quest incoming mega pulse. This is going to be on. Follow me here, Scott. Tuesday. What? Mm, A Tuesday launch of an episode. Tuesday, November 9th. We're going to coincide it with their Kickstarter. Normally, we do a Thursday, but I thought, you know what? In this instance, and going forward, perhaps, maybe we'll do these Kickstarter episodes and have them coincide with the launch of... uh, Just a thought. We got a meetup coming up. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, November twentieth, we're going to be at Black Lotus Pizza again. We were there over summer. They they invited us back. They love having us. We love those guys. Good food.
1: They have oh, yeah. a liquor.
0: They have a liquor license. Let's point that out too. Uh,
1: so,
2: hey, there's nothing meetup. better
1: than sitting around with friends, having a couple drinks, eating some pizza, some snacks. It turned out to be a wonderful evening, and I can't wait to go back again.
0: So this is free if you intend on coming. We're going to be there from 3 to 9 on November 20th. The only thing that we ask, buy some food. Get yourself some food. Get some drinks. Have a good time. We're giving away games. You know what I'm doing this time, Scott, is for every X number of people, we're going to give a game away. Rather than like having five games to give away and there's only like 20 people there versus only having one to give away and there's 30 people there. Mm -hmm. You know what? For every 10 people, that's another game.
1: Hey, that sounds interesting there. So hopefully we'll get... Standing room only. I love uh-huh. chatting about things, but we got a lot of stuff to cover here, so I think we need to get into what games we've been recently playing.
0: Recent adventures. Do you want me to take the floor?
1: You do it. The floor okay. is yours.
0: All right. Well, I, I got got a play in of a game called Battle Bosses. This is the 2019 game by Michael Groth and Alex Kessler, published by Kess Company. Kesco. Kesco.
1: Sure. Let's go with Kesco.
0: All right, well, I had the opportunity a few days ago to play this game. It's a game that I'd never heard of before, but I saw that they were looking for fine, high-quality shows like ours to play and talk about the game. So I messaged, and within a few weeks, I had two bosses show up at my door.
1: You said battle bosses. Now, I would think uh, that they would just give you one there to give a try to it. But you got right. two?
0: Yeah, Two bosses? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when went,
1: <laughs> I don't know
0: why I said, mm-hmm. <laughs> Scott, when you buy the game, you buy a boss, and your opponent needs to have a boss as well. So if you're looking to have battle bosses in your collection uh, to introduce other people to, you're going to need at least two bosses. So the Mm -hmm. the box has your tiles and whatnot. There are eight different ones to choose from. They sent me Nightmare and Ryu, but other bosses include the Mechabot, Cthulhu, and my personal favorite, Captain Boat. (laughs) (laughs) It is a pirate ship with teeth. It's like a monstrous, like, came-to-life pirate ship. It looks awesome. I, I did not get that one. They even sent me a med- They're like, hey, which ones do you want? Which ones are you gravitating towards? And I was like, you know what? I Just send me whatever two other people don't want. I'm okay with that. So your boss comes with a pre-constructed deck as well as several counters that you punch out and hex tiles that you need to build your portion of the map. Now, the rules are literally on the front and back of a folded-up page that fits into the box
1: that's it. Perfect. I love it already.
0: So how do we play? You're going to draw up to five cards each turn. Your deck has like, I I didn't count. I should have counted. We'll say 25 cards in the deck. It's enough that you're going to, if you're drawing five, you're not going to cycle through it really quick. So you're going to draw your five cards and you're going to roll dice basically to determine how many resources you have to spend. So the die faces, so they're going to show some combination of energy, or resources, and then some of them have an exploding die symbol, Mm. which means you're going to get the resources showing, and you get to re-roll that die. So if you roll your five dice, and three of them have the exploding die symbol, you get all those resources. You roll those three again, and two of them still have the symbol. You roll those two again. So a little bit of luck involved. You can get a whole you can get supercharged for a turn. You're playing the cards in your hand to deal damage to the other bosses, but also the things around you.
1: Okay. So are you Both. doing something is this like a kaiju type of game or something or yes <laughs> all right
0: so I had Nightmare and Ryu. Both of them could summon minions to do their bidding. And I'm gathering that every boss uh, in some capacity can put minions, just little chits on, on this board. So you know what I said? It comes with hex tiles to build your portion of the map. Let's start right there. You're going to make like a donut of a map, like a big circle using these hexes. And your little two-page rulebook actually shows a quick little diagram of how to do it. So Mike and I are playing one boss versus the other. I set mine up in like, like a letter L, and he sets his up in an upside-down letter L, making... basically if you have a third player you just add to it a fourth player etc you can make this thing bigger and bigger so you're able to make these minions basically all the minions that reach another boss are going to die their movement abilities uh, uh, they march about the map and they try to end up in an opponent's space that's basically your goal is to move them to get them to your opponent's boss and whenever they reach the boss they're gonna die but they're going to deal one damage in the process. Every boss, as you can imagine, has some number of health points. So if I start with 15 and you get three minions to me, well, I'm Ryu. I, I smite them all. They're dead. But I took three damage in the process. If ever your minions are in the same spot as your opponent's minions, they just die one for one, like attrition style, right? Mm-hmm. Cards in your hand sometimes are going to modify the minion movement or give you an additional ability. In my case, like I could I could turn one of my samurai, th- those are my minions, right? He was like this dragon and he makes little samurai. I could turn one of them into bushidos, basically making it count as a double piece instead of just one samurai. So the goal of the game basically is to kill the other boss. You know, march around this map, send minions towards them, get yourself next to them and and kill the boss.
1: So I'm looking at this, and this feels like kind of a uh, palate cleanser type of game.
0: Kind of. Uh, maybe a little bit meatier. Let's start here. Let's start with how long does a game
1: take? We'll say it's a, an appetizer then.
0: Very good. One-on-one, go. Mike and I, it took us like 10 to 15 minutes each game. I can see we're multiplayer. Uh, three players where you can start to get into sort of a, an attrition, like send this wave, and it right. gets gets beat down. Send a wave back, it gets beat down. I can see where you can get... Multiplayer games getting up there. This has decks. This has a tile map, dice, two different resources. Is this a difficult game to learn? No. In fact, that one page rulebook, this is remarkably simple, so much so that I don't think that it is super fulfilling to an adult gamer. If I'm having the guys over we're gonna have our meaty game day, I don't know that I'm necessarily going to get battle bosses to the table. I'll get it to the table whenever we're waiting on that last guy or waiting on two people or someone shows up early. Sure. It feels like a fantastic game to play with your older kids because it does offer variation. There's a lot of game in battle bosses. But for all the things that I talked about, none of it amounts to a lot of depth in the play. Think of it more like a fun beer and pretzels game. With resources allocated by dice.
1: Okay. Now, is this like all done with little markers or chits, or what do you put on the board? To- oh, that's the coolest part—the battle boss. Mm-hmm. See, now this
0: doesn't translate to podcasts. I'm showing Scott this with is my great hands how audio. tall it is. Yeah, the battle boss is probably three and a half inches tall. Oh, it's wow! It's a, a plastic miniature. That's not very miniature. It's it's imposing. It's not the highest quality miniature, but you don't care. You know, the game is yeah. a boss It's not meant to be tainted grail with its epic men here on, on the table or, or Ankh with its giant gods in Ankh, for example. Yeah. It was kind of weird though. Something stood out to me and I actually emailed them about this. The side of the box said for ages 16 and up. 16 okay. and up. Yeah. I actually emailed them to see if they meant to say six and up. And you know what? I think they might actually be trying to pull some clever marketing to oh. make the game seem deeper than it is. Right, because this right. this truly can appeal to a younger gamer. Coffee traders. Uh, the side of that box says ages 12 and up. On Mars says ages 14 and up. Mm-hmm. So it was really odd seeing battle yeah, bosses yeah. saying 16 and up.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it here. And it looks like it would have a, a really cool table presence, though.
0: Yeah, it does. Especially with those big miniatures.
1: After playing the game and getting the miniatures out and everything, what what are your thoughts on it? I mean, is it something you're going to pull out again and play again? I will
0: probably never play this again with my gamer friends, but that's okay. not against this game. It's just it's simpler than what we've come to expect. But when my daughter is a little bit older, I can see breaking this out a good bit and having a blast. Uh, there's not a lot of strategic depth, but there is enough that I can play it with family. I can play it with with younger gamers. I'm talking 10-year-olds. And I don't feel like I have to hold back. Like, you know how you can play a game with a newbie or a nephew or something and you see right. some of those emerging tactics and what could be oh, yeah. phenomenal yeah. play. But you don't do it because you know that they're not seeing that also. So, you kind of hold back. This is a game where you really don't have to hold back
1: because it's a surface level good mm-hmm. time. Real good time. There needs to be a trilogy of movies about Captain Boat. <laughs> That must happen. A boat with teeth. Come on. The story basically writes itself.
0: You know what would be kind of fun? I want to actually contact the uh, Kesco and be like, hey, I want to buy the original art for Captain Boat. Can you see framing that and putting it in the game room?
1: Oh, my God. I, I Everyone want Captain... that
0: comes in would be like, what is that? Tell me I'm about gonna that. I'm going to buy
1: this game just because I want Captain Boat. That's mm-hmm. all.
0: I could also see where it's like you get one battle boss and your friend gets well, like Scott gets Captain Boat, so I buy Mecha Bot and Mike has right, and it's like okay, who's showing up today? Everybody, get out your battle bot. Now for yeah. for adults that are getting together and we normally play brass, it's like well, well, no, we're not going to do that. But recess time, this fits oh, right yeah. in. Like this would make for a great gift for a middle school gamer. Hey, here's one for you, and and maybe he needs a gift for his friends. Billy gets the Mechabot, Josh gets Ryu, and uh, Jane gets the Nightmare. And then every recess, it's, you know, one-on-one, one-on-one. little. See, I want to go back to middle school so I can play games with these kids.
1: I'm intrigued. I got to take a look at this game here. This is definitely something that's piquing my interest. Well, you know what? You can have my
0: copy because, like I said, I don't see me playing it. But I know you play a lot with your nephews. Uh, you've yes. got some eleven and twelve year olds in there. Sarah won't be ready for you know, like a game like this for probably four or five years. So I'll go ahead and give you battle
1: bosses. Oh, I'm 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 raring to give this thing a try.
0: Speaking of giving things a try, what recent adventure have you embarked on?
1: Well, we're going to continue with this kaiju feel. I got in a game of King of Tokyo. This is Mm. going back a little bit here, back to 2011. It's designed by, hey, one of the godfathers of gaming here, Richard Garfield. And it's published by Yellow. In King of Tokyo, very, very simple premise. You're a kaiju. You're a big monster coming in to attack, of all places, Tokyo. You have a bunch of dice. You have six dice to roll. On each one of the die, you have a one, two, three, a lightning bolt, a heart, and paw print. So you roll your dice. If you get three of one number, if you get three twos, you get two points. The idea is you need to get 20 points to win, and you have ten points of health. So you roll three twos, you get two points. It's that simple. Then you get a choice if you want to go into Tokyo or not. If you go into Tokyo, Each turn you're in there, you can get an extra point. But then there's the whole thing with the paw print. So when the paw print comes up, you get to smack the living whatever out of your opponents. So if you're in Tokyo, you just wind up and you smack everyone around the outside. So Mm -hmm. if you're playing with five people, you get to smack four different people with however many paw prints you have. If you're outside of Tokyo you all gang up and smack the person that's in Tokyo. The thing that makes it kind of fun here is the lightning bolts. The lightning bolts give you power, and you have a deck of cards of different special abilities. Yeah. It might give you an armored haul. It might give you an extra attack where you get to roll an extra die. There's all sorts of special powers that you can get. For like your upgrades creatures. for your monster. Exactly. It's not a difficult game. It's fairly simple. You roll your set of dice three times. You roll them. Keep out what you want to save. Reroll the rest. Keep what you want to save. Finally, reroll a third time. You take a look at what you have. You give yourself points. You hit other monsters. Or you get more health with the hearts that are on the die. Mm -hmm. Very simple game. Very fun. I mean, they have all sorts of expansions. You can get Cthulhu as an expansion now. Of course. But they have all these crazy things where it's a giant monkey. You have a penguin in a mecha suit, a, a mecha Godzilla. Yeah, you get you the Godzilla. You have a Godzilla. You mm-hmm. have all sorts of different things. It's just a silly game, beer and pretzels type of game. It's nothing that you're really sitting there scratching your beard thinking of strategies of how you're going to actually win. No,
0: Yeah, bragging rights over the week after your game day are not going to come down to whether or not you won at King of Tokyo. Oh That's my sort goodness of your, gracious, your kickoff no. for the night.
1: Now, the one thing I have to say about this game that I always think is so cool is at Origins. I I don't know if they do it at Gen Con or not, but definitely at Origins, they have almost a life size version of this. No. So you go over, they have it on the floor, and you have these kaiju that are probably about three feet tall, nice. and these giant dice that you roll. So you well, play wait. The that doesn't make game. it
0: life size. Godzilla is not three
1: feet. Well, tall. I know, I know, but it, it's it's <laughs> almost. It's just a hoot seeing it. I mean, it's one of those games where if you roll, I've had a couple times whenever I played, and the six dice all come up as the paw print. So oh. I'm just smacking the snot out of somebody. And it is just such a great feeling whenever that happens. Or whenever you roll the dice and you get the numbers on it. If you get three threes, you get three points. Mm-hmm. So you roll four threes, that gives you one more, so you get four points. So you have those times whenever you roll six threes and you get six points. Oh, I never have those times.
0: You know what I love about King of Tokyo is that the base mechanic is just Yahtzee. So really easy to understand. That's not great. But then you factor in that you have Tokyo. You have this King of the Hill. Like, okay, you can go in here and you can start smacking everything. Don't you get like an extra point or something while you're in Tokyo? That you do, yes. I I haven't played it for years now. Okay, so add that in. And we've actually got a, we're on to something here. Get those upgrades. Make every game a little bit different based on the mm-hmm. upgrades that you have access to. Uh, maybe I don't buy any of this game. Maybe I focus on it. That's what made this into a great, I mean, this is, I would say, a modern classic.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's definitely one of those ones that just about everyone has played. Like you said, it's very similar to Yahtzee. So right away, people are coming in with a good idea how to play this game. You just tweak the rules a little bit more, boom, you got King of Tokyo.
0: Didn't they do a King of Tokyo, New York, or King of New York?
1: King of New York, I... yes, they did.
0: Ah, okay, and Santorini did. I thought maybe I was confusing it with Santorini, New York.
1: Oh, no, 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 Santorini, that's a whole different beach. Which there. makes
0: no sense. You know what I want is King, King of Santorini.
1: <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I've always looked at this about upgrading it, because I have a bunch of Monsterpocalypse stuff. And that's something there we got to take a look at because I know they got a Kickstarter coming up here soon. But taking the Monster Apocalypse things and using those monsters, that would really flesh out this game.
0: Oh yeah, and you know what? I like that we get the chance on level up to revisit old games. We're not a show that's always going to feature the upcoming stuff, so we get to talk about things like King of Tokyo. Oh, good times, Scott.
1: Oh, yeah. We just do the things that we have happiness with, that we ha- enjoy. Now, speaking of that, ah. I know you got a chance to play a game that just makes you as giddy as a schoolgirl. <laughs> tee hee <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you remember in the movie Predator when Dutch finally decides, okay, I need to challenge the Predator one-on-one? Yes. And he lights that torch and it's dark and the music's like... Bro! Yes, the the war cry. Yes. That was our experience last oh, weekend. Wow. Scott, we're talking eight player Twilight Imperium. Oh I mentioned my this God. last and episode. You're actually like, oh, here I'm so excited. Now? Yeah, I haven't uh, slept for two days. Jeez. So I've talked about Twilight Imperium in the past. I don't think I need to do a game rundown because you can go back to like three of our episodes already. We reviewed it back in 10, I think. Was it 10? I, I think. Look so, at it. Yeah. We reviewed it back back way back when. Uh, nevertheless, for those who don't know, let's frame Twilight Imperium as a we'll call it a diplomatic, negotiation-filled space opera where you want a massive dangerous fleet. But you don't necessarily want to have to use it. So this recap is going to be a little bit more of the game day than of the game. So mentioned last episode, we did all kinds of prep for this game, including, and I will reiterate my recommendation to do this when you have a big game day coming up, making a Facebook group, getting a text chain, building the fervor, saying, okay, guys, I'm, I'm making this, I'm making that, you know, for the food. With Twilight Imperium, we got to go the extra mile. We got to do like a faction draft and then update on the Facebook. Oh, my goodness. We were all so hyped to play. And man, it didn't let us down. I will tell you, though, Jeremy at one point was like, is Scott going to play? I was like, oh, no, he can't. Scott won't be there. And he just had this look of like, he's met you twice now, I think. And he's like wanting you to he's not interested in coming over to my house and play with the guy he's known for fifteen years. He's like, Is King Scott gonna be there? Is the king Jimmy played uh, Dune with us yesterday, and Jimmy was like, I get to meet King Scott. Oh (laughs) You're you're a local legend. (laughs)
1: All right And for those that are interested, yes, episode ten was Twilight Imperium review.
0: Oh, look at you, Johnny on the spot. So in our eight-player game, we did have a couple of new players. Let's take a minute here and point out that this isn't a game that you teach someone and you expect them to not be completely lost in the woods. I find that if you teach the very, very basics of the game and then let the rest come to them, it actually works out all right. You don't have to teach what what the supernova is on the other side of the board. Wait until they ask what the supernova is. You don't have to tell them about what the fourth tech on the green tech tree means. Wait until it's even an option for them. And you know what? Oftentimes by then they will have figured out through some of the more basic mechanics what that fourth tech does and how it functions in the game. What I did come to realize, though, is that Twilight Imperium has discovery at every stage of the game. It's a board game that has the potential to be a lifestyle game, Scott. This is one that you can play every single week. And two years later, still be learning about interactions and intricacies within a play, down to the metagame of who you're trying to play with and what factions everyone else is bringing to the table. In our playthrough, I got to be Jolnar, and Jolnar is absurdly good. They're they're recognized as one of the We'll say in the top quarter of factions, 24 factions in this game. And I had the opportunity Jeez. to be Jolnar. Jolnar is very, very powerful, but it's going to be a very different game if the guy sitting next to you is a trading faction and they're interested in trading. It's like, holy crap, I'm going to just explode versus if you have the Volrath Cabal or uh, L1Z1X, like a warring faction next to you. Oh, That's going to be different too. i got to play defensively. So like, not only do you have to know how to play whatever one of the 24 factions you're playing, and if you're new, you don't have to know going in, but not only is the potential for you to learn that before you approach a game, there's also the map setup. There's also how many people are playing. There's also what races are they playing? How far away from them am I? What planets do I have access to next to me? has the potential to be a lifestyle game. Twilight Imperium even has tournaments, big ones. Big ones where players who played the game hundreds of times square off, and kudos to them. They'll do it on Tabletop Simulator, for that matter. I can't even imagine, but it's on there. This all brings me to the Space Cats Peace Turtles podcast. Scott, I bring up Twilight Imperium because I'll do so at every opportunity, but I wanted to bring some, I wanted to put a spotlight on Space Cats, Peace Turtles. So I'm working on the rental house and I'm taking seven or eight hours a day, five or six days, well, five or six days, four or five days a week. And I'm telling you what, I downloaded their entire podcast and I'll start with an episode. <laughs> and at the end of one work day, I've got four episodes down. I got to play Joel Narr. So they had the walkthrough, like here's some, now their walkthrough is they can't, give you every variable there are too many but they can give you a basic like okay here's how you might want to approach a game so I immediately messaged my friends I was like you guys have to check out Space Cats, Peace Turtles download the episode about your faction, your race man you know what I come to realize is I love introducing games to people but man some of them were watching videos and checking out like Twilight Imperium wiki pages for tech paths and whatnot I think it would be so awesome to play a game with other people that are Fully invested like that. And some mm-hmm. of us were, but not all of us. Like I said, we had a couple of new players. I want to play with players that know all of the factions and their promissory notes and you know every little detail of the game. All in all, though, there's something really special about getting eight friends together for a long day. Good food, good drinks, and a very solid game that tells a story every time you play it.
1: I am one I am not a huge fan of Twilight Imperium.
0: Well, we're done here. We're looking for new co-hosts for the Level Up Board Game (laughs) Podcast.
1: There is a but here. What's your pushback? Yeah, go ahead. But I am so happy to see you enjoying that. There are games that people love that other people don't. And that is wonderful. And I'm thrilled that you guys got together. You did this and you had a blast doing it. I know if I sat down and said, "Hey, guess what? We're going to play miniature games all day today, and it's going to be freaking awesome. You're going to be sitting there going, "Yeah, great. Woo! I can't wait. <laughs> I would humor that. I would. <laughs> so but you know
0: one of, one of my fears with miniatures games is that with so little experience, I feel like I would be the guppy going into a pool of sharks, and I'd rather like, if I'm going to do that, I want to be around other guppies."
1: <laughs> but no that is awesome uh that you were able to get all those people together to play that game and yeah i was watching how you were doing it and you're building up the excitement on facebook that was absolutely fantastic and kudos to you for running an awesome game but boy i'm doing mm-hmm. a lot of butts here today <laughs> but how did the game turn out how did your faction turn out I came in second, and oh. I know my buddies are
0: listening because they think that I got the win. I came in second, Argent Flight One. I was Joel Narr and I got a rule wrong that earned me a point for the win. What, the way that we set it up is, guys, we're gonna play to fourteen, but if six o'clock rolls around, we haven't finished, we're gonna play it one more round. And at the very end of that one more round, Jeremy and I were tied at eleven. I had the lower initiative, so I got to, I, I got the win. Problem is, the turn prior to that, I produced at a space dock, which was blockaded. Long story short, I did something that you're not allowed to do. And, you know, three new players, I'm answering all these questions. Uh, yeah. It's a rule that hasn't come up in many of our games before, and I missed it. So I actually messaged Jeremy the next day, and I was like, you know what? I did this, and I wasn't allowed to, and that's what scored me this one point. So I think you're actually the winner. <laughs> He's like, well, that's big of you to say that.
1: <laughs> Something else here, I whenever I played with you, I was a new player with such a massive undertaking with eight players. I don't know. I mean, we might have to bring this up for our conversation here a little bit later, but how do you do it whenever you introduce new players? How did you work that out in this?
0: Yeah, for such a big game. I mean, it's one thing we just talked about King of Tokyo, an excellently, uh, we'll say introductory game to introduce someone to the hobby. Yeah what about something like twilight Imperium? It's so big i mentioned before you just got to kind of teach the basics and then let the game come to them it obviously helps if they are the gamer types now two of our guys they're not board gamers they're like well i play a lot of video games and they're listing all these convoluted complicated video <laughs> games i was like okay it's gonna work, and you know what they actually they did they did very well. This is a game that helps in that the eight actions are selected every round in an eight player game, so you get to see the I choose, everyone follows occurring. Right. You get to see everybody using their tactics tokens and using their strategy tokens. so I, I don't know that it's as hard or as daunting as it seems. Uh, some of the, the best tips though, there are some excellent like how to play videos and I, I said to them, look, watch this video you're not going to get it. You're going to be in the weeds 10 minutes in, and it's all going to start to blend together. But you're going to hear those words, flagship, war, sun, carrier, planet, resources, influence. And whenever I teach it to you, it's going to cement it a little bit. So you know, when you have a big game like this, sometimes having a, a video, something to watch ahead of time, sending that to your players, that can help a, a good bit.
1: That's that's a great idea there. I mean anymore we have so many different resources to use to learn how to play games Mm -hmm. and being able to do that and share that out with people beforehand lets you jump right into the game and get started instead of that 5 10 15 minute explanation and then not really playing your optimal game because you're busy like is everyone understanding what's going on so that's a fantastic idea oh yeah
0: you know what it made the game much smoother we didn't Get to fourteen points, but we did hit eleven, and that's with the teach and, you know that next time we're gonna play to ten, and I'm confident we're gonna actually finish the game <laughs> oh, hey, <laughs> without that's having awesome. to do the next round's the last round caveat.
1: no wait wait, 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 you said you're gonna play to ten,
0: yeah, normally you play to ten points or you can oh. flip the thing over and you can play to fourteen points you're um, last...
1: thinking you're playing to ten players the next time, I'm like, wait uh, a minute. no, no,
0: no. With Prophecy of Kings, it'll go up to 10. Oh, you know what else we're going to do? The, the whole faction thing where, like, we drew three factions and everybody got to pick one right. from the. Th- so, like, I have three to choose from. You have three to choose from. Jeremy has three to choose from. Next time we play the eight that we just used, we're going to scrap them. We're going to oh. get rid of those eight. And then everybody everybody's going to have a random two to pick from. And then we're going to play again. And it's going to be everybody has to pick. Everybody just gets one at random. And we're going to try and keep the same eight people. That way it's, okay, I already know the foundation. I know how to play. Well, I have a game under my belt. And I think that's going to help us moving forward. That's That's a fantastic idea. Oh, yeah. Twilight Imperium, fourth edition. Excellent, excellent game. Scott, what are you doing?
1: (laughs) I brought my own musicians today.
0: That's my thing. Don't do it.
1: Uh, uh, Don't uh, 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 do it. uh, uh. And go. Go.
0: So I suppose now I have to come up with some clever thing. Oh, that's my car alarm.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: yes, it is time for the top 100. We have some changes in the top 10 on the BGG rankings. Ooh. Top 10 so, change. Yes. So Great Western Trail. It's not in the top 10 anymore. Oh, not but so Great War Western Trail. War of the Rings 2nd Edition is yes. in. So, the highest that these have ever been ranked here, War of the Rings 2nd Edition is number 10. Uh, one of your favorites here, Lost Ruins of Arnak, is number 48. It keeps jumping. Yes, it does. Pax Premier, 2nd Edition is 55. You know, we have to play that at some point. Yes, we do. We most we're a, definitely have to
0: do We're that. a reputable, outstanding podcast. We have to play Pax Premier at some point. I, I
1: am intrigued. Ah, Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy, number 57. Ooh, we have to convince Tom to
0: buy that at some point.
1: Yes, yes. (laughs) And another one we reviewed back in the past here was Grand Austria Hotel is 79. Oh,
0: very nice. Good for Grand Austria.
1: I know. That's awesome. And we have some birthdays this time. Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon, has been on there for one year. Mm Mm-hmm barrage has been there for one year mansion of madness second edition how long do you think that one's been there
0: uh what does it come out in 16 or 7 i'm guessing that it's been in the top 100 every year since it came out and i just don't remember when it came out I uh, six years
1: very close it's been five years
0: five okay so that may 20- 2016 game then right
1: Yes. And Very the Voyages nice. of Marco Polo has been on there for six years. That's
0: a lot of birthdays. This is a October's a pivotal month.
1: Yes, it was. I mean, hey, you've got to figure they probably put out a lot of new games here thinking, Yeah, it's gonna get cold here in a couple of months there. They're gonna need something to do over the winter.
0: I would have thought Gen Con and Origins, they're released then and then it takes a couple months to get into the oh. top one hundred and October just happened. I don't know. It just that's a good idea. There. I have I like no idea. That.
1: You know what I do have an idea
0: of is there's another game that every time we do our top 100, we seem to mention it, and it's our review game today, Dune Imperium. You ready? Okay, let's do it.
1: Hey, adventurers. It's time for us to take a look at our review game, Dune Imperium. Dune Imperium was released in 2020, designed by Paul Denon, and published through Dire Wolf. It's a game for one to four players and takes about an hour to two hours to play. This game is an interesting mixture of worker placement, deck building, and combat that all comes together to make a fantastic experience. In Dune Imperium, you choose a character ranging from Duke Leto to Baron Harkonnen. There are three levels of difficulty with each character that you pick. Each character has a special ability and a Signet Ring ability. I'll explain this Signet Ring a little bit later. Along with your character, you get a 10-card starter deck, 2 agents, and 16 soldier cubes. The board is split up in a number of sections. The far left is a section that shows your alliances with guilds in the Imperium. It could be with the Emperor, the Bene Gesserit, the Spacing Guild, or even the Fremen. The top section covers areas in the Imperium that will give you monetary and persuasion bonuses. The center section covers areas upon the planet Arrakis. This is where you will gather your troops to defend your house in battle. Each turn, you will draw five cards. These cards have a lot of information on them. At the top, you have their title. At the bottom, there are two lines, and on the left side are symbols that match the areas on the board. When it is your turn, you will take one of your agents and place it on the board. Hey, hey, hold on, tight star man. It ain't that simple. The symbols on the card on the left show you where you can place them. If you want to start an alliance with the Fremen but don't have their symbol, tough luck. This makes it tough to find where you want to place your agents for the most efficient action. Each of the places on the board also have a cost to place your agent. This makes it very interesting to figure out where you want to place your agent to get resources as well. As I said, the bottom of the cards have two lines. The top one has bonuses you can get for using it to place your agent. You can place your agent, then draw two cards, or get two soldiers, or even trash a card. All sorts of different bonuses are available. There is also one that symbolizes your Signet Ring. When this one is played, you can activate your Signet Ring ability on your character card that I mentioned earlier. Once you have placed your agents, time to build your deck or pump up your combat. On the bottom line of the cards, there will be diamonds with numbers in them and or swords. If you use the card for the diamond, this will give you persuasion and allow you to gain cards to place into your deck. If you use them for the combat bonuses, you cannot use them for persuasion. Now, the combat. There is a combat arena on the right side of the board. When you're placing your agents, if your bonus shows cubes you can add cubes to your garrison, increasing your troops available to fight. If on the spot where you placed your agent also has a cross sword symbol, you'll place the cubes you got for that placement, plus the ability to move up to two units from your garrison to the combat area. When you figure combat, each cube is worth two combat points, where each sword that was found on the bottom of your card is one point. Whoever has the highest wins. At the end of each round, there will be a Conflict card revealed showing what first, second, and third place in combat will win. All these parts come together to make a great game, and the first person to 10 points will be the winner. Now, let's see what our thoughts are on Dune Imperium in our 8-bit breakdown.
3: In all the known universe, there is no more precious resource than the Spice Melange. Found only on the harsh desert planet of Arrakis, also known as Dune, control of the Spice is a focal point of conflict among the great houses of the Imperium. In its pursuit, those vying for power seek alliances and support to secure their position. The governing counselors of the Landrat. The Coam Company and its insatiable hunger for profit. The far-sighted Bene Gesserit. The Spicing Guild with its monopoly on full space travel. The Fremen, resilient warriors of the desert. Even the Emperor himself is not above the struggle for dominance. Conflict is inevitable, and its outcome is uncertain. One thing is certain, however. Whoever controls the spice controls the universe.
0: Well, Scott, thank you for the walkthrough of today's review game, Dune Imperium. This has been, as I said, in our Top 100 discussion for since we started, I think, and it keeps on climbing. It's time to do an 8-bit breakdown. You ready?
1: I am all set. Let's do it.
0: Bit number one, the art and components
1: of Dune Imperium. <laughs> I gotta say they aren't spectacular, but they work. The gameplay outshines the artwork, so the artwork is very yeah. secondary into in this game.
0: Yeah, same with the component sides. Huh? Honestly, aside from the artwork on the cards, which is thematic, and I feel like they drew and and created that art based on the images in the film, it's kind of bland. The board's not particularly. Now, there's a lot of action spaces on that board. There's not a lot of art to look at, but you know what drives me nuts is the stupid cross swords for uh, mm-hmm. for the combat. It looks like a big X. It looks like, okay, why did they put an X there? But <laughs> I don't know. It's just, None of the components are like, oh, that's chunky. That's awesome. None of them are bad either. You know, the water droplets look like water and they're blue. The spice is orange. It's a little orange wooden hex piece. That's not like, I wouldn't call any of it bad. I just wouldn't call any of it exceptional.
1: Yeah, this is a game that I I enjoy that's... I mean, we're kind of going ahead here a little bit. But yeah, stick on I art and really, components. <laughs> I really enjoy this game. But I look at the art and components as being supplemental to the gameplay. They aren't one of those ones now where everything has all these miniatures, all these detailed miniatures, all these add-ons that you get for different things in a game. This just takes you back to the basic things of old Euro games, Mm -hmm. your wooden pieces, your little stand up figures, your agents that you're moving around. It's not super realistic, but you still have that feel of you're doing something important. You're going to different places. You're trying to get alliances with the different guilds. So, I mean, all the stuff is there, but it's nice that you don't need all the special stuff in order to make this game great.
0: Yeah, components just don't stand out. But y- you know what? The art on the cards, I did like that. Like, I know very little about Dune, and yet you do get a
1: sense of the world because of the card art. Very much so. And once you watch the movie, you see where they got the stuff from. I'm still, I still enjoy the 1984 David Lynch one that people think is just an absolute horrible movie.
0: Well, let's talk theme and immersion bit number two. I'll lead this show. I'm not a Dune guy, Scott. You were just talking about how you like the old movie. I have nothing against Dune. I just don't know much about it beyond that there's a movie that just came out. And actually, Chris and I just tried to watch it uh last week. I think it's on HBO Max. We got a half an hour yes. in. And we, you just got to be in the mindset for it. I was like, okay, I don't do, I'll, I'll throw down Dune. I'm a little tired, but whatever. And it's very stylized and you got to pay attention. And we made it half an hour and we're like... You want to watch a comedy? <laughs> so you know what we watched? Tucker and Dale. Oh, uh-uh, there you go. <laughs> we'll save Tucker and Dale talk for another day. Uh, I just don't know much about Dune Beyond that it's a movie that just came out. To me, it's a mechanical game for that reason. Having said that, the alliances and the bonds that the game incorporates, I think that strengthens the theme a bit. The leader ability is thematic to the faction that they represent. When we were playing yesterday, Tom was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I don't get to do this because I'm these guys and and they fight. And I was like, Okay, so Tom's actually diving into this. I was who was I? Who was my guy? I was the Duke. Duke Leto. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> um I was the duke and you could gather that he plays around with influences. He wasn't great with fighting. I know nothing about the movie, but that probably makes sense to those of you that do. The game does draw out some some theme based on the the characters and the factions and and the cards that are associated with the various uh, factions. I was never actually immersed in the story of my faction. I wasn't immersed into the world of Dune. No, but I could build a Fremen-centric deck or a Bene Gesserit deck, and the art is slightly differentiated according to that faction. I thought that helped to draw out the theme too.
1: I am into Dune. I enjoy Dune a lot. Oh, I was sucked right in immediately. Everything that goes on with this, I absolutely adore it because you're going through and you're playing, and each one of the things are so unique to what the character does. Mm-hmm. You have the cards in your hand that you're playing, and you can see like, you have Fremen that are coming out for things. On the board you're going through, water is so important in this game. You need to get water for things. If you don't have water, you can't do things. If you don't have spikes, you can't do things getting the alliance with the different guilds, getting with the spacing guild, the special abilities you can get with that are perfect. Uh, getting in with the Bene Gesserit, getting in with the Emperor. If you enjoy Dune, honestly, I, I find it hard to see how you would not enjoy this game. I was so scared whenever this game first came out because I looked at it and it's like Dune Imperium, And all I could think of is they took some sort of game and just threw an IP on it. And that was it. Mm -hmm. But no, definitely not. It's a deck builder that isn't a deck builder. It's a worker placement. That's not just all worker placement. There are so many different things in this that come together to make a great experience in this game. Yeah, I love this game.
0: You're uh you're
1: showing your hand here, Scott. We're oh, not I Dint know I am. Yet. I'm proudly showing my hand through this one.
0: I guess if I had to summarize theme and immersion, uh, you give us the, you love Dune and it makes sense. Uh, I'll say, and I'll bring this up again as we continue to 8-Bit Breakdown, uh, not caring about Dune, I did still enjoy this game, so I'll tip my hand a bit as well. I think sometimes, Scott, gamers try harder to like a game when they love the IP, or they're indifferent to a game because they don't really know the IP. I'll give you an example, Firefly. I know nothing about Firefly and I don't care to try that game. Now, if, if that game was like Zaya 2.0 or you know mm-hmm. something that's like, oh, I do love that. If it was, I don't know, we'll say a Star Wars game or, or insert random IP that I enjoy, I'd be like, I have got to own this game, right? And if, well, the point stands. If you don't know an IP, I think a lot of gamers tend to be indifferent or not antsy to try a game. Whereas if you do know the IP and love the IP, like if a Ninja Turtles game came out, I'd be like, this has to be good. And even if it's mediocre, I'd be like, it's the best thing ever. <laughs> Dune is first and foremost an engaging, fulfilling set of mechanisms.
1: Then it's a theme game. As two different people, as someone who really enjoys the world of it and someone who doesn't, I can oh, definitely see- not I don't dislike
0: it. I'll, oh, no, I'll, no, I'll no, make no, that no. clear. Yeah. I have nothing against it. I just don't know much about it. But just seeing
1: it, how you are more drawn to the mechanisms and I'm more drawn into the theme, but they still are both things that go together to make this a great game.
0: Well, let's talk about those mechanisms in the complexity. Scott, here we've got a worker placement game with a number of restrictions for placement dictated not only by the cards that you have available, but also potentially by the resources. You mentioned spice. You need spice to make some big plays, or you need water to make some big plays. There will be times in a play where I want to go somewhere, but I just don't have the right color symbol on my cards. Or I have the right symbol, but not the money. Or the right symbol, but not the water and then you pile on that good old worker placement blocking a space thing like finally lunar alignment i can go there and tom went there unbelievable Mm -hmm. this can be a very restrictive game and i think that the complexity is in navigating those restrictions that's going to make this a gamer's game it's one that you're not going to sit down and just admire the art i mean you can do all that you you can sit down and, and enjoy yourself and and have a have a nice time, but you ain't going to win the game. You got to think. You have to regularly think about the next turn and even the next one after that, if you're going to have a good performance. Couple that with a fairly robust deck building aspect, uh, like neither the deck building nor the worker placement take center stage over the mm-hmm. other. And I think that you've got a, a mid-weight game that actually teeters towards the heavier side of middle. It's not a heavy game, but this is not easy.
1: Thinking about complexity, I look at this as well, too, as the way that the board is set up really makes it, I think, a little bit easy to understand how to play this game. Mm -hmm. Because along the one side, you have all the different guilds that you want to get alliances with. Mm -hmm. Then on the inside, you've got some of the other things that are going on, uh, outskirts of everything, of the main battles. Then you go in and then you have the main battles. Then you have your combat area. The, Is that a rackus? Yes. You got to
0: respect the game, Scott. That's a rackus. Oh, well, well, all right. Any all Dune right. fan knows.
1: Ooh, ooh. <laughs> you've thrown the gauntlet there, pal. But uh, the complexity yesterday, whenever I was going through and teaching Jimmy how to play, I don't know if it was that difficult to really go through and explain what to do. Everything on the board shows you exactly what you need to do, what happens when you put your worker there. You place it there, you have to pay this, and you will get this. Like you said, it's not really that complex of a game, but your decisions that you're making in order to be the best that you can play in this game, that's where the real magic comes into this. It's got some emerging complexity.
2: Yes, The rule yes.
0: set, there's a lot. You know, it's, I'm not going to say it's easy, but some of the deeper plays, like, okay, I want to do this, and I can plan for it. But who's got the first player marker and what are the odds that I'm going to have the opportunity to do that when it comes to my turn? In the case with Tom taking my spot, for example, you know th- that's sort of an emergent complexity that you're not going to see that game one. You're just going to build towards, now finally I can take the spot. Whereas if it's game 11, okay, now I know that I can take the spot, but am I going to be able to? That's where you got to think a turn ahead and that can be complex.
1: Yeah. And the other thing too that I like about this is the combat system in this is not just whoever has the most there, they're going to win. Your cards that you have, you can play them as two different things. You can play them as where you're going to travel on the board, or there's another bar at the bottom where this is going to help you in the battle at the end. You'll have extra swords to add on to your combatants in the big battle on Arrakis. People don't know exactly what's going to happen. So, we've got a lot going on in this game, and it's all found in the rule book.
0: Bit number four. What did we think about it? My thoughts? You looked great holding it.
1: <laughs> this is on you, Scott. The rule book is put together quite nicely. There are three different rule books that you get, in a way. You have your main rule book that goes through from start to end exactly how each thing works. Mm-hmm. Like I said, with the board, it's broken down into different areas so you can break down each area and learn about it and move on to the next one. The second part is it has a description of what all the spaces on the board does. So that will go through. You don't have to have the rule book and flip through everything, trying to find that one thing. You've got your one player aid right there that gives you all the board spaces. Then the final one gives you, which I've done quite a bit here that i love is information on how to play a two player game, or a solo game,
3: mm-hmm.
1: so they have a separate deck of cards that you play that will be the AI for the other two factions that you're going to play against. Whenever you're playing a solo game, solo pits playing... you against two. Yes.
0: Oh, interesting. So
1: if you're playing a two-player game, it will only put you against one mm-hmm. AI. And it's very simple to do. They even have an app that you can use that have the cards on there. You can just play it on your phone, on your iPad, That's or cool. whatever. You play it that way, and all it does is you flip over a card, and it tells you place one of their agents there. If that isn't there, flip over another card, place an agent there. Mm-hmm. You might get halfway through it, and it's like, oh, by the way, reshuffle everything back together. Everything that was out is back in now. Oh, and, interesting. Um, it's very clean. It's a nice big chunky rule book. I mean, not many pages, but it's a big like album size. Yes, uh, rule book. So vinyl it's record sized rule book. Exactly, rule book is great. So I'm going to throw this back to you with the learning curve. Bit number
0: five: the learning curve. Kudos, first of all, to your teaching. Uh, I think we spoil <laughs> each other a little bit, and that we're both taught. Yeah, that we're both taught games. We we're both learning games from each other, which means we're learning from a teacher who's taught hundreds of games to a variety of players. So it goes without saying that anyone's take on the learning curve begins with the person who taught the game. And in my case. I get the privilege of learning from the king. So that always (laughs) makes my learning curve much less curvy. Straighter, more straighter. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a learning
0: line. I have familiarity with worker placement games and with deck builders. This game combines the two. So if you teach this to someone who doesn't know one of those two concepts, I can see where it's going to take a learning game, like a full on learning game. If a gamer buddy's never played Dune, but they have played Lords of Waterdeep, and Dominion, or any worker placement and deck building game for that matter, their foundation is going to be exceptional. And the only thing left to learn is the combat, which is pretty easy. And the iconography, which is like yellow triangle, purple circle. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not hard if you have the foundation of the deck building and the worker placement. Again, though, without any experience with those mechanics, this is definitely going to be a game that it's going to have some bumps along the road in your first playthrough. So let's get to bit number six, replayability and variability.
1: All right. You have, um, I'm trying to go off the top of my head here. One, two, three. I think there are eight different characters that you can play as. Mm-hmm. And they go anywhere from very simple to very uh, difficult, very challenging, very strategic. I'm anxious to play with every single one of them. It really looks You haven't knocked very, them all cool. off yet. No, I have not done them all yet, so I'm still working on that. I'm almost there. The ability to play solo, that's great, but I don't think it shines there. It shines whenever you're playing with other people. Whenever you throw in that wild card of you don't know where they're going to go. Whenever you go through the deck of cards, once you go through it so many times, you're going to have an idea where things are going to go. Whenever you're playing against someone else, You have no idea. Like you said with Tom, Tom placed things right where you wanted. And I mean, we had probably about three or four damn it moments yesterday easily. And it makes me think, should I
0: have planned for that? Like the human interaction is a huge variable. What were your thoughts on it? I think it starts with deck builder. Anytime you have a deck builder, I think that gives you tremendous replayability. Right off the bat, let me make that clear. Deck builders often have a ton of variables from the cards that you can choose uh, to the order that they arrive in tandem with the decisions that you make with them. I think it's a true statement to say that deck building as a mechanic often leads to high variability, which might correlate with replayability. The agency that you have in how you're going to pursue your game based on the cards that you have access to and the ones that you select, I think that is tremendous replayability, on the other hand, needs to see a few more variable changes, which Doom does pretty well. You have your faction leader, and then you have your conflict cards. You have your intrigue cards. Those are randomized orders, for example. None of these on their own are going to change the entire way that you play the game, but each little factor is going to contribute to alterations in your strategy this game that you might not have had to have considered last game. And talking about strategies, uh, yesterday I was I was big money. Well, not big money, mm-hmm. uh... uh you know the the actual quote what's the, what is the money called in dune uh salari that's what i said salami uh <laughs> <laughs> We uh, we go for the low hanging fruit here, folks. Um, I was I was big Solari. That was my play. I wanted to get to unlock the worker and get on the council really quick. There's big influence. Those those little diamonds at the bottom of your cards that you can use to purchase new cards. For example, you can play a big influence strategy. There's a fight hard strategy that Tom was going for. I also in my play I incorporated a bit of a call cards from the deck. So the Mm -hmm. cheap like starting cards, I think by the end of the game, I had four of them out as well as that one that automatically trashes whenever you play it. So you have these different avenues that you can play the game or you can select a combination of them. I'm going to be a guy that fights hard and I'm also going to call cards from my decks that I see more swords. I'm going to be big influence so that I can buy a lot of cards, and I'm going to use that to get big money so that I can lo- unlock my extra worker, so that I can buy the uh, those sand, the, let the spice flow cards and try and yes. get my points that way. I can pay, uh, play big influence with the guilds. Um, by the end of that game, most of us had reached at least the level three spot for a point. There's four points there if you hit level three on each of those tracks. Then if you get to the top or near the top, if you're the person that gets that little token, there's you could score eight points almost the entire game, just based on those influence tracks, never win a single fight. I'm going to get my eight points there, and then I'm going to buy two, let the spice flow. Well, That's a viable strategy. There are different ways that you can pursue Dune Imperium every time you sit down. There's going to be similarities from play to play, but oh, it gives you a lot of option based on the specific game you're in. I like that.
1: Now then, uh, downsides. Of the now game. then. <laughs> we're smooth
0: today (laughs) how about you take on the downsides i've got a couple but i want to hear what you have to say
1: um the downsides i think that people it's hard for me to get into other people's heads because i want to say that one of the downsides might be dune itself that people look at that and there's a lot to dune they think of like all these different things that are going on, it may seem a bit daunting to get into it. They may think that there's more to this game than there really is. And they Mm -hmm. may just be like, "Eh, I'm going to, I don't think this is a game for me. Another thing is that you could be a bit of a downside looking at just the wooden pieces. You might want something a little bit more as far as the components go. I'm a hard person to say at this because this game is constantly on my mind thinking of, how I want to play it again, who I want to play it as, and I know that I'm going to have a thematic event playing this game and having a great time. That's about all I can really think of right now. I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it.
0: Would it be fair to say that for you there are no downsides? This is like a perfect King Scott kind of game? Because when we identify theme and components as potential downsides, well, that could be any game. To Think of the game with the best components in the world. Well, it's not made out of gold
3: you know like someone
0: out there might not let you what do you is this to you i gotta say this
1: is one that constantly is in my mind i want to play this game and then with the expansion coming out here soon that's going to make it even more of an interest for me to play this game even more
0: okay so you're turning to me for the downsides what can i identify because it's not a perfect patrick game it's Uh, I'll go over that in bit number 8. But I was able to cite what I would think are downsides maybe not to me but can be to other players. I made it a point to point out at the very beginning of the game to Jimmy that those conflict cards, the rewards are going to increase as play continues. We first played this back in February and I was like gung-ho about winning those fights and Mm. I won some of the cheap ones early and I was like wait I got a point and I got two spice for my wins you're getting double points and intrigue cards for your like not knowing that they were going to ramp up just make it a point to point out to new players that those do get better as with almost every worker placement game there is high value in unlocking an extra worker as early as possible and we have that here as well and with that issue comes the fact that as the game nears a finish there are cards in the market and spaces on the board that might become nearly useless so this gives a little bit of a structured play like okay early on you If you're going to do this, like if you're going to unlock the worker, do it early. If you're going to get on the high council, you're going to do it early. If it's the last turn in the game, you're not going to be going to the high council spot, for example. Maybe that structured play uh, will, will keep this from being timeless, like a game where we're still exploring strategies four and five years down the road because there is a Uh, It's not on rails. It's definitely not on rails. And we identified that in bit number six. It's plenty replayable. But there are some aspects of the game that this is to be done early. This is to be done Mm -hmm. late, etc. Turn order matters. And I love that. I think turn order mattering is good. When we talked about brass, I said, you know, what? that's just so compelling an aspect for a game to introduce. I like when we have to consider turn order in order to make good decisions, but it can be easy to forget. And while you're scheming up your big play, like we're saying you're acquiring the spice that you need, and then the round that you want to do it, you pick up your piece and Tom took it. (laughs) That can be brutal. And that's not the game's fault. You know we players need to take turn order into consideration, and I like that. But I think that for some folks that can be, I think for some folks it's more frustrating than that happens than it is satisfying to pull off the intended Mm. play. I think some folks can can be turned off by that. But you know none of that is necessarily a downside for me. I I I did like Dune. Let's go to bit number eight. Was it fun? And who's it for?
1: Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) The end. Yes, it was fun. I, every time I play this game, I enjoy it. It scratches my brain the way I want it to. Whenever you have, like you're just saying about, whenever spot that you're planning to take and someone takes it, now you got to stop and think, what's my alternate move? What am I going to do? And I love that kind of thing there where I need to take a look and figure three different moves to make what are going to be the best ones and have those in my back pocket ready to go right whenever it's my turn
0: oh and, and then I, you can amp it up to watch the other player and be like what are they going to do how can i sneak it away from them you know be, yes. be the that's
1: next level gameplay so I, I thoroughly thoroughly enjoy that the other thing is who's it for yeah if someone like dune
0: uh, oh that's it, a cheapie
1: that's the oh, obvious it's come a cheapie, on but that we one didn't there tune is in for that someone who likes dune this is going to be a rewarding thing for them they're yeah. going to enjoy this game it's not like dune roll a die move five spaces oh you're in Arakeen. oh roll dice move four more you meet the fremen no it's nothing like that it's a thinking game and it's one that if you do like dune it's going to unfold the story and all the politics in the background and everything else that goes on You're going to feel that if you're really into Dune. So, was it fun for you, and who do you think it's for?
0: You said a lot of what I was going to say, so I'll try and keep this concise. Dune is an excellent, excellent game. I mean, we do our top 100 updates, Scott, and I feel like over this last year we've mentioned Dune every other update, and it's for good reason. This is a solid game that combines two very popular mechanics. I think working in its favor, follow me here, is that this is a grown-up sci-fi theme of Dune. I don't even know much of anything about Dune, but I can acknowledge that this is a cool world. It's not another cutesy cartoon art style game that's made to appeal to literally everyone while not offending anyone. You know, it's not bland. This is a rich, gritty universe that intrigues me. I think that that plays to its benefit just as much as the fact that the IP is popular for we nerd types, right? Mm-hmm. That's saying a lot, too. It's the question was it fun? <laughs> yes. Dune's very fun, and the only reason I don't own it is because you have a copy, and Mike bought a copy. So yep. I was like, well, I guess uh, I'll have access to this forever. Who's it for? This one gets a little bit more intriguing. I don't think it's in lot-proofed. Uh, it's probably too complex for the younger crowd as well. Mm-hmm. For that matter... Uh, I'm going to dig on you, Scott, because I put in my notes, it would be cheap if I said, well, if you like Dune, you'll like this. <laughs> <laughs> I would instead propose, you don't need to like Dune to like this game. There you go. If you like Dominion, Clank, Escaton, other deck building styles of games, you're probably going to like Dune. And if you like worker placement games like Viticulture or Edo, you're probably going to like Dune. And Scott, I know I know, we don't like to mention price But we can't avoid it here This is a world where there are 100 plus dollar Kickstarters That's the norm Shipping's 50 bucks And you might get it next year And it might be disappointing Boy, you could go out today And come home with this game for 50 bucks Mm-hmm. Fantastic game That I will gladly play anytime And if you and Mike didn't own a copy I'd go out and get it today
1: Dune Imperium Go play it
2: Hi, guys. I'm Andrew Davidson with AsForMyAbility.com. Okay, Houston, we have a problem here. Those words uttered by John Swigert on April 13th, 1970, while on board the Apollo 13 flight shuttle, not only embody a seminal moment in American history, but speak volumes in the frailty of mortality when humans are in the never-ending vastness of space. In the previous decade, under President John F. Kennedy's administration, he promised his fellow Americans that the country would put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. It was a taxing problem for Kennedy's administration. Unlike the space travel we know of today, in the 60s, getting to the moon appeared, well, unattainable. Kennedy worried that he wouldn't be able to make good on his promise to the American public. He worried so much that in November of 1963, Kennedy literally lost his mind. Oh, too soon? Sorry. Well, President Kennedy, unfortunately, would not live to see July 20th, 1969, when American Neil Armstrong set foot on the dark gray soot soil of the Earth's moon. Hey, did you know that the first beverage consumed on the moon was wine? Most people think it's that awful powdered juice called tang. That's not true. Call it one of those, what do you call it, Mandela effects or whatever. You'd figure a couple of astronauts drinking wine on the surface of the moon would be a little more commonly known, right? No, not at all. And here's why. On Christmas Eve, 1968, during a broadcast from space, the crew of Apollo 8 read from the book of Genesis. Their voices beamed into the heart of every home in America were not as well received by everybody. Unfortunately, a prominent atheist group took action against NASA. As it turns out, the staunchly atheist group didn't uh, very well appreciate their taxes, supporting a federal program that promulgates religious text. The group called for separation of church and state. The Supreme Court dismissed reviewing the lawsuit, but the members at NASA knew they dodged a bullet of negative press and an exorbitant amount of financial loss. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, both devout Catholics, snuck a pouch of wine on board the Apollo 11 space shuttle. Upon landing, the two brave men took communion, breaking bread and drinking wine, but NASA Well, they suppressed the information to the news in fear of another attack. In fact, it wasn't until decades later that the two men came forward with their moon-based communion confession. I learned all about this fascinating event from touchdown on the moon to consuming alcohol 238,900 miles away from the closest vineyard, listening to Bill Whittle's podcast series entitled Apollo 11, What We Saw. Although Apollo 11 put a man on the moon, Apollo 13 proved to be an entirely different kettle of ads. Okay, Houston, we have a problem here, Swigert said over the communication system. A malfunction blew a small hole along the side of the Apollo 13 unit, threatening the lives of all those on board. John Swigert was one of them. Wait, hold up. Let's back up a bit. Even though Swigert uttered that iconic phrase, not even located in North America, let alone on the planet, back home, America rested deep in the urine-laden kiddie pool, otherwise known as the Cold War. The Cold War, which lasted 44 years between communism and democracy, sparked other acts of competitions of countries beating their proverbial chests like alpha male apes. One of such challenges, popularly deemed as the space race, involved the development of Russian and American space programs. Unfortunately, Team America was losing uh, badly. While Team America was losing three brave astronaut lives to fires and constant malfunctions, Russia had not only put a human being into space, Yuri Gagarin, but an ape and a dog as well. Yikes. America was losing the post-World War II breakup with Russia. Meanwhile, in a response to Russian advancement in the space race, America launched the Gemini program. The purpose of Gemini was to catch up with the Russians. However, in order to do that, we had to put an American in space. You know, you've got to crawl before you can walk. After the Gemini program ran its course, NASA ushered in the Apollo program. Its sole purpose, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Like literally where no man has gone before. For realsies, I'm not quoting Star Trek or anything just to be clever. Apollo 11 would be America's golden star. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, who spent years in training, successfully reached the moon. The iconic moment left Americans with an epigraph that, even today, permeates the cultural zeitgeist one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. America had pulled through. The millions of employees, the death of the Apollo 1 space crew, and the countless hours of hardship and training had paid off. In 2020, Buffalo Games and Puzzles released Apollo NASA Moon Missions, Now, for clarity purposes from here on out, I will just refer to the game simply as Apollo. In Apollo, players work cooperatively to accomplish one of the two scenarios within the base box, Gemini or Apollo 11. One player stays behind and operates as mission control, while the other brave and intrepid players flight suit up to work as a team aboard the space shuttle. Again, as previously mentioned, Apollo is a fully cooperative game. Mission Control and the shuttle players are, for lack of a better phrase, each playing their own minigame. Where Apollo really shines is in the tie that binds the minigames together. Everything the players do on board the shuttle affects what the mission control can do within their minigame and vice versa. The gameplay comes with a real-time element, as each round lasts four minutes. These two concepts, well, they're nothing new. XCOM, the board game, implemented a similar game structure accompanied with a real-time element. Apollo is a challenge. It's very challenging, no matter which scenario you play. To this day, playing as the mission control player, I've lost a grand total of three astronauts who burned up on their re-entry. Quite frankly, God, the memory haunts me, keeps me up at night. Anyways, in objectivity, while the history of the space race is fascinating and the historical based board game about going into space gets me as excited as a single child on Christmas Day, the real cooperation and important decision making rests with the astronauts, with mission control acting as the bookkeeper to the whole experience. This, unfortunately, creates a bookkeeping problem. What's a bookkeeping problem, you say? As the mission control player, I never felt a sense of making any significant contribution to my brave astronauts in the deep of space. Instead, it feels like mission control keeps track of sliders and tabs, and with limited communication, there's not a whole lot mission control can do. In fact, I ended up grumbling about it so much that one of my astronaut players shot me a dirty look, to which I responded, Hey, don't give me that look. You're in space. In space, no one can see your dirty looks. To be transparent in my review, I have only played Apollo as the mission control player. So, you know, keep that in mind. From what I can tell, sitting behind my mission control screen, watching and waiting... I've seen nothing but positive reviews from the astronaut players. If you have a gaming group with an individual who tends to sit out and just watch players play, boy, howdy, this is a game for you. See also Mysterium or Mysterium Park. If not, if your group is composed of savvy, motivated go-getters, then this is a supermassive problem. Outside of the mission control bookkeeping debacle, Apollo offers a myriad of problem-solving and important decisions that the group must agree on. These actions are put to a four-minute timer, which provides for a sense of urgency and evokes a complete and total panic attack. But maybe that's just me. All in, Apollo NASA Moon Missions is an interesting experience. To borrow from the great Julius Caesar, I came, I saw... I conquered, uh, now I'm kind of over it. Unfortunately, with the mission control bookkeeping problem, coupled with the base game containing only two scenarios, the game has an incredibly short lifespan. The Gemini scenario serves as a tutorial, while the Apollo 11 scenario feels like an actual regular game. So all in, you get, well, one complete mission. Even if Buffalo games and puzzles were to release expansion missions, which they totally should, Dub, for me, the unique experience of the game, you know, it's already come and gone. Apollo, akin to the milk sitting in your fridge, has an expiration date. I enjoy the game, and I enjoy what the developers were going for. Unfortunately, this game may end up getting lost on its way to the moon or to my shelf.
0: Got my wife got me Apollo for Christmas this past year. Jeez, uh, we're coming up on a year. T- uh, Christmas is around the bend. Uh, oh she got God, it for me yeah. and I haven't had the chance to play it yet. I, I picked it out. I learned it and you know, I opened up the mission packs and I still haven't gotten it to the table. I just haven't had a game day where we were able to get it, get it out and Maybe we'll make it at the November meetup.
1: I would definitely be interested in that. Everything about like things with the space race, those kind of games I really enjoy. Now, this is some one that we haven't played in a while that we might have to visit here in the future. Space Explorers has that whole thing of like the space race with USA and Russia trying to get to the moon. That era of everything going on with space is just such an interesting thing where they're shooting people into outer space in metal and duct tape. And to be able to play a game and try and, and feel what it was like doing that, mm-hmm. that's that's just such an interesting topic for me. It's wonderful that you can not only just have a good time playing a game with your friends, but still learn some things and tweak something in your mind that you're like, I want to learn more about this. Right, And those are the kind of things that are really great. Andrew, thank you so much for the Academy yes. segment. Archmage
0: Andrew has made the show much, much smarter. <laughs> oh tell my you yes.
1: what, Uh Andrew does words good, unlike us.
0: Well, he does them gooder.
1: <laughs> so today, with our discussion topic, we like to delve into things that go on with the gaming hobby. You play with your friends. Sure, you have a good time. But, you know, there were other people out there that would be interested once they got into it and they put their toe in and -hmm. they're like, yeah, I'd like to play these games. So we're trying to figure out what's the best way to introduce someone to the hobby. Patrick, you put up a Facebook post asking for recommendations on ways to introduce non-gamers into gaming. What types of games to show? What type of person would you show games to? That's Mm -hmm. a big thing there. And what should we avoid when doing so? That's another big, big topic.
0: Yeah, I tried to leave it open. How about? Uh, well, do you want to go over some of the community responses? We'll do maybe we'll do three of them, and then you and I could just sort of give our thoughts,
1: you know, yeah, banter a little yeah, bit yeah, here, yeah, Scott. Yeah, sounds good. All right, sounds fun. You wanna you wanna go first? Yeah, uh, we got one from uh, Joshua. For me, it's all about the person or persons I'm teaching. I tailor the gaming experience to the person. I will only pick a game that I think the person will enjoy. I also make sure that they want to learn the game, or at least are willing to learn. I never try to force anything on anyone because that just starts everything off on a sour note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The biggest note for me is never teach a game that you don't know backwards and forwards. Nothing kills the flow of a game more than having to flip through a rulebook to clarify minute detail. I always go through the rule book at least once before teaching even a simple game. Some of my go-tos that I have had the most success with are Carcassonne, Smash Up, Dungeons and Dragons, Dixit, and Zombie Dice. It's interesting there that Dungeons and Dragons is an easy one. Now, I'm still not really big into RPGs or anything. I I like to get the books and read about them, but Mm -hmm. hey,
2: Kudos I guess if you're you, a good Josh.
1: DM, you can tailor
0: a game to, you know, everybody's got to start somewhere. So I can see where you could tailor the game to be to be simplified yeah, a yeah. little bit so to, those to are sort great. of handhold people. You know what I like that Josh points out here is that the biggest no is never teach a game that you don't know backwards and forwards. And he's so right. I mean, if yeah. you're trying to show a game to someone like if you're trying to introduce a game to me and I'm not a gamer and you have to crack open the rule book, I mean that subconsciously tells me, okay, you don't even care that much about this, or even if you do care, you don't care enough to know it backwards and forward. We as gamers that are introducing people into the hobby have a responsibility to make sure that we are doing so in the in the best way possible. If you're gonna introduce someone to a hamburger, you're not gonna give them a <laughs> I don't know, McDonald's, you know, smushed double cheeseburger or whatever. You know what I mean? You're going to like, okay, I'm going to make you a hamburger and you're going to make your best hamburger. You're going to make that patty perfectly round. I don't know. I I like to correlate to food. If you're going to introduce them to pizza, (laughs) you don't go to Walmart and pick up a Billy Boy's. You order out something nice like, oh, wait till you taste this. It's delicious, right? That's what we want to do. When we're bringing someone in, you want to make certain that it is the best experience you can make it. And you know what happens then? If they're not that interested or they didn't have that much fun, they're never going to have that much fun. You know what? I just showed you how to play Carcassonne, and you know everyone I show this to loves it. And I know every rule inside and out. And maybe that person just doesn't like Carcassonne, but they might not like gaming. Point stands. Know the game backwards and forwards.
1: Yeah, that's one I had uh, definitely such an important thing there. Yep. Scott, my picture,
0: I had no thanks. I used the picture of us playing at Black Lotus Pizza over summer, and I took no thanks. I thought, well, that's an excellent introductory game. And Arwen responds, I love that you have no thanks here. I used a picture from our, our Black Lotus Pizza meetup. I took no thanks. I think it's just a fantastic introductory game. She says, I love that you have no thanks here. That is still absolutely one of my go-to new player games to just throw something different their way. I've introduced it to maybe a hundred different people at this point, and every time it lands right. After that, I can usually sense how well they're taking to the game and go from there to introduce new games and new concepts. So Arwen's kind of going with a, let's start simple. And boy, No Thanks is simple, but it has some meat on the bones. There's some thought processes there. And if they take to the very easy game, then we can introduce something that's a little deeper, then a little deeper, and maybe even tailor it to their likes, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: And that's something there that I know I uh, spoke to Stephen at uh, SCG in Latrobe. I said, hey, I have a suggestion for you. You should get a copy of No Thanks in here, just uh to- just to get people interested in something on that. so We'll push it. We'll be the pushers. One. Yeah. I see you have another one here from Ralph. What did Ralph have to say? Yes. Uh, with Ralph, I usually ask him if they've ever played or heard of Catan, Ticket to Ride, or Flux. If they haven't, I usually start them out with something simple like Aquarius, then Looters, then Ticket to Ride, and go from there depending on their interest. I've also noticed that using Flux as a gateway game doesn't work well because it seems to frustrate people due to all the rule changes.
0: (laughs) Ralph took the opportunity to dig on Flux. I love it.
1: Oh, I I could dig more on Flux too, but I'll I'll refrain. But no, I mean, I can see the, the joy of Flux. Are you a Star Trek fan? Are you a Doctor Who fan? Are you a Back to the Future fan? They have so many different expansions for Flux. But, yeah, the whole idea of the simplicity of changing the rules every card that you play is also the detriment to that game is that you're changing the rules with every card you play. So it's hard for them to get an idea like, oh, this is how we play. Okay, let's go. Oh, but wait, this changes everything. I don't know how that one works. It's a bit confusing, but I could see where it's, depending on the people that you're playing with, it could be the greatest game to introduce them to, or not one of the best. I just don't like it as an
0: introductory game, not because the rules stack up, because it's so random. Yes, have, oh my like, yes. so little agency. and. Okay, this isn't going to become the uh, Pylon Flux segment. How about you and I banter a little bit about uh, introducing someone to the hobby? We'll just go down
1: that list. Uh, what kind of games do you
0: like to show, Scott?
1: Well... You want to try and figure out, do they have a competitive spirit in them? Mm -hmm. Or are they just kind of there for the social aspect? Mm -hmm. So you might play some party games. You might play, no thanks, we brought that one up there. You might even go back and play, oh, heck, Rummy. Something simple. Once again, the games that you know forward and backwards, things that you are very familiar with, you play these games with them. Then you kind of get an idea, are they playing it? to win or are they playing it just to like we're having a good time if you see that they're kind of getting into it to win that's whenever you want to start going into more deeper games like oh, we might have a gamer on our hand hit exactly exactly so you want to kind of test the water there a little bit now what do you think think about like first step there I think you're
0: onto something with, with trying to maybe tailor the experience to the, to the individual. But let's assume that you've got a group. I think it's nice to maybe have a couple of different games. Like you said, well, you could have a party game and then you could have a strategic game. Like, no thanks. And I think that could be really wise. If you have, we mentioned uh, Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza. Mm-hmm. Remarkably simple game that is not a thinker. I mean, it kind of is. It plays with your mind a little bit. Um, but it's more of a it's a social interaction game anomia is a social interaction game you could try that you could take something like that that's just a straight up laugh you know get loud and laugh and then you could take a game like wits and wagers where it's a trivia game but it's more of a betting game where Mm -hmm. you're trying to deduce who knows the most about something well you're tapping into a different element of gaming that that deduction and there are more serious deduction games out there Fury of Dracula. Somebody takes a liking to a social deduction introductory game like a, like Koo, for example. Well, that's someone that down the road you might have in the back of your mind, hey, they're gonna, they're gonna really love playing as Dracula or hunting Dracula in a Mm -hmm. game of Fury. If somebody likes No Thanks, which is very much a playing the odds with some risks involved. You know what, if they like that sort of thing, well, then that's you should have games in the back of your mind that are like the next step after that. So if you have a group of non-gamers, assume that you've got three people coming over that haven't played games or some, you know, they invited you to a party and, you know, I'm going to take a few games with me. It's nice to have a different type of game two or three different games that are mm-hmm. different from each other, that are all fun, that are all introductory, that even if, okay they're not going to love social deduction, Q didn't land for this guy, but they're going to be able to figure it out, they're going to understand the game and you know, have, have a good time while they're doing it, even if they take it no further, but man they really like no thanks we played a game of, uh, of The Crew that group was like, well let's do the next mission, come on, you know, everybody's leaning forward, let's do it, you can take those simple games and, and try and build on them
1: I think a good thing here with like a next step game is going into a co-op game, doing Mm -hmm. something like pandemic, I think is great because you're all working together. Yeah. You can have a little bit of a quarterbacking problem, but it could also be more of a quarterback coach. You could be where you're standing back and just like explaining what will happen and you're all working to the same goal. So it's not like the person's going to play the game. They're going to come in dead last and then feel like, oh, this was fun. Yippee. With doing a co-op game, you all win or you all lose. So you all are going together. So you're kind of letting them enjoy the aspect of the game without having to, like, being thrown in the deep end by themselves into a deeper game or a heavier game. Mm-hmm. Pandemic is not really a heavy game. No. But still, there's more stuff to it that you have to worry about. Uh, And it's nice
0: for a new player to know that your hand can
1: be held as you learn the game. Exactly. Exactly. And these kind of games, like a co-op game, helps you figure out what they like and kind of get an idea. Like if they go on like, well, I like this whole thing of putting my workers in different places and moving them around. Well, maybe we ought to introduce a worker placement game. I liked having the cards here and like getting the cards in my hand to to make sure I had uh, like a right set. So maybe a set collection game, going into Ticket to Ride or something. If you are really into games, you've got a whole library in the back of your head of what could work out for someone.
0: Well, let me ask you a question. When, when you're showing folks how to play a game, be it at a meetup or just a friend that has never gamed with you before, do you have it in mind that there's an ultimate goal of – Getting this person to play Fury of Dracula with me, getting this individual to play Root or something that is more complex that is in no way an introductory, a a
1: gateway game. Is that the goal? In my mind, no. That might come as a surprise, but in my mind, I want them to have the best experience they can with the game we're playing right then and there. Mm Mm-hmm it might be something in the back of my head thinking uh, a little bit like okay we should pull out this game next but my whole thing is to make sure that they have the best time playing that game that we're playing at that moment
0: you're saying that you don't introduce games hoping that down the road they'll become you know a heavy gamer or a gamer gamer like you know what we would think of the the hardcore gamer type I don't think so.
1: I've been in the position of being the gamer around people who don't want to play games at Mm -hmm. all for most of my life. I mean, it's been recently that people like to play games and I am happier than pig in a big mud pit, but I, I look at it that I'm just happy that I'm with a bunch of people that aren't big gamers and I'm playing a game. Now, Mm -hmm. afterwards, I might think about it uh, afterwards, but at the time of playing, it's not my idea that I am trying to make them into the next game or that I'm going to have a big, heavy game with. It's just, hey, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Ticket to Ride, I enjoy it. I have a good time with it. My brother-in-law, we introduced it to him. He loves this game, Mm -hmm. and I'm so happy that he was able to get a game that he loves and he really enjoys it. And I've opened up that little door to him. That's all the farther he really goes. That's fine. But I've given him that amount of joy to play that game and have a great time with it. Scott, what's your favorite weight of game to
0: play? So if you're going to sit down and and play a game, you get to pick the game. You get to pick the perfect crowd to play it with you. Are you going to go with entry-level games? Uh, next level games, midweight games, upper mid-weight, like, uh, or, or just over the middle, like say our Dune Imperium discussion, are you going to go deeper than that or are you going to go heavy as can be? Now, I, I know that the answer is probably something like, well, I like them all at different times because mm. I'll agree right, with you there. Right. But it, if you got to pick one game and this is the last last game you'll get to play this month, make it count. What weight game? You don't have to say the game itself, but what weight would you put your I would say at?
1: something – in like a mid to heavy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Something falling in like brass. Like I can shut out the outside world. I'm focused on that game. I know that I'm gonna be playing that with other people that enjoy gaming. Mm-hmm. So that's that's my time. That's what I really like to do. Thinking about the Renaissance Festival, one of my biggest things I always tell the other cast members is we are here to make happy memories for the people that come in. Mm-hmm. So my idea is whenever I'm introducing someone to gaming, I want to introduce them to something that they're gonna have happy memories they're playing. Mm-hmm. If it means that it's gonna be playing a lower form of game, um like a light game, um mid to lightweight. A
0: lower form of game. I know. Whenever
1: I said that, I was like, Oh God, <laughs> I could once again. I know I I know I know what you mean good.
0: though. I know exactly what you mean.
1: I want them to have a good feeling because I know if they have a good feeling, that's going to draw them back again. I want to cater it more to their enjoyment than introducing them to the gaming as a hobby. See, I'm the total opposite. I have the ulterior
0: motive. I do want to (laughs) cater. I want to make sure that they have a great time. But all the while, I'm staring at them and my brain is going, are they liking making this decision? Could they handle making a second decision at the same time? Uh, I now, and I say this being being silly, but oh you know, yeah, I, lo- I love introducing games to people because I do have it in the back of my head that eventually they're going to sit down and take the mentac Coalition, or they're going to play a game of Brass with me, or, or God help me on Mars, God help them on Mars, and <laughs> or, or play a Lacerta game, something something much deeper. Like I yeah. want more people, like. I mentioned with, uh, when I talked about Twilight Imperium earlier in the episode how cool it would be to sit down and play with only other people that uh, that have played a dozen games, two dozen games, three dozen games. Only with people that have played every faction and know what every faction's flagship does. And promissory note, it's it's next level gaming. Magic the Gathering, I've, I've said it in the past – the dirty secret about like sitting down and getting stomped by some pro, and that's not fun for me. Well, you know, that's not fun for him either. You want to play with people that present a challenge. You know, um, Scott, give me a sport that you're really good at. <laughs> or, okay, okay. Or game. Or, or, or get, I don't know, skee ball, the, anything. Yeah, I'm decent at skee ball. We'll say uh, that. Okay, we'll, we'll keep go it ski- easy. Okay, so Scott, you're, you're phenomenal at skee ball. The highest form of skee ball, the most fun you can have playing skee ball, then, is probably not showing people how to play and enjoy skee ball. It's, ooh big tournament ski ball tournaments coming up you know i'm going up against some of the best you know you start rubbing the ball is it a ski ball even though it's called well basketball i don't it's, know. Called, it's a basketball in a game of basketball it's a football in a game of football so i'm assuming that the little ball is called a ski ball i could see you there you know you, you you blow on your ski ball and lean in that's the most fun you know that that's the ski ball tournament that you look forward to playing and for me, that's the same thing with games. And when I'm introducing people to games, in the back of my head, yes, I'm absolutely going. I eventually want them to be able to to come to the game day and play the big game. Sometimes, whenever I have a, a game day, my one brother comes up, and he's far more casual. And it's like, you know what? I'd really like to play this game, but we really can't because I don't think he is going to. I'm going to get halfway through a rule teach and he's going to do that thing where he makes a face and, and starts like flicking his lower lip like he's lost in space. And I'll be like, well, we're not playing that one. I really wanted to have, have that fun. I guess I'll break out insert X simple game. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? Because gaming as a hobby, it's so diverse. So many different people like it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in a very fortunate position where we're able to have things like an event at Black Lotus Pizza. And, you know, yeah. we say, bring along your friends. So it's up to it's up to them to find who they're going to bring to tag along. And, you know, it is a gaming event. So naturally, whenever we're meeting people that aren't into gaming, it's – or whenever we're meeting people for a game day or, or that might be new to the hobby, they've already been handpicked by the person that's bringing them or they're well aware that they're going to a gaming event. So there's some interest already there. Well, Scott, let's bring it on home. We could probably discuss this for the next day, but let's uh, maybe a, a final point. One, one main rule that you think people should follow when they're introducing someone into gaming. Play a game
1: that you enjoy. If you're teaching a game that you don't enjoy, it's going to come off and the other people subliminally, it might be going to the whole idea that, well, he doesn't like this game. Why should I like this game? It could really flavor your teaching of a game to somebody so Mm -hmm. definitely choose something that you enjoy get a light game that you're familiar with that you like your enjoyment is going to flavor the entire experience well sound advice king scott we're back into solo adventure land Yes, adventurers, thanks for
0: sticking with us. We know we got a big episode and we've got more to come. We've got our solo adventure land where we're at now, and then we're going to talk adventures on the horizon before our top five of the last ten reviews. you want me to kick off solo adventure, Scott? You do it. Uh, I'm thrilled with this one. I had Nemo's War on the table. I think last episode I mentioned that I got Arkham Horror for some solo play, but weeks later it was still on the shelf in Shrink, and this was the main roadblock. Nemo's War 2nd Edition is a 2017 game designed by Chris Taylor and published by Victory Point Games. I should point out also that the artist was Ian O'Toole. There's not a whole lot of art in the game, but what's there is beautiful. We've got a game set in 1870 that puts the player in the role of Captain Nemo, piloting around the Nautilus submarine. You get one of four different motives at the start of each game, which is going to dictate your objectives, and obviously it's going to influence your play style. These motives being science, exploration, anti-imperialism, or war. <laughs> of course, everyone has to have war. Well, let's forget about the modus for a minute and talk about how you actually play the game. So our board's set up, which has a representation of the seas at the bottom, and that's where you're going to have navy ships and civilian ships appearing along with your Nautilus miniature. You're going to start every round with an event phase. Uh, I should point out nemo's war being a solo game we're in solo adventure land they have ways that you can play this with more than one player but this is about as close as you can get to a true solo game it is in its best form as a solo game so you start the round with an event phase this is kind of what you would expect but it will note that the event deck isn't just the pile of bad things that happen oftentimes these do give you benefits then you move on your placement phase and this is simple scott but boy can be frustrating you simply roll two dice and you place ships in the corresponding seas, as according to the pips on the dice. Then you get a number of actions equal to the difference between the two dice. Oh, and ha- okay. And what happens if they're the same number? You have a lull turn, which basically sucks. <laughs> <laughs> you can influence dice in this game, so there are some ways to mitigate things. Then you can have an action phase, which is where you use those action points and You remember what I loved about uh, Black Orchestra and the way that they had rules on the board and reminders on the board? Oh, they got that here. They got a nice reminder to the left of the seas that lists the various ways that you can spend your action points. And what happens when you do? You can adventure, which is where you're drawing adventure cards and potentially gaining treasure. You can attack, which is what you would expect. chance to take out some of those ships in the seas. I should point out that as the seas fill up, that does become kind of a game clock. You can incite, and this is what you want to do whenever your objective is inciting uprising. That's your anti-imperialism motive. You can move, which is what you're going to be doing a lot, rest, repair, refit, and search for treasure. Now, after you've done all the actions that you wish, your turn's going to be over. You can save one action point to carry over to the next turn, which actually does come in handy because of that lull turn. When it does happen, Mm, should you roll doubles, it's nice to at least have that one point. So let's talk about the Search, Repair, Rest, and Refit. I kind of breezed right through those. That's how you're going to increase your stats for your crew and for your haul. This is a dice test where you roll the two dice against a table on the left of the board. Now, you know me. You know I don't like games that introduce the, well, test against X with your dice. Mm. But there is a gambling aspect introduced here where you can exert resources to increase your odds. So it's not like, well, if you have this one card, you can discard it to mitigate dice. No, that's a cheap way of mitigating dice. This You can actually risk an amount of stats uh, for the hull of your ship, for the crew. Mm. You can sacrifice crew to change the odds prior to rolling, not after the fact. And that makes a huge difference, making that decision before or after. Attacking is going to work in a similar fashion as, as the dice matter. When you defeat a ship, though, you get more options. You can put the ship into tonnage or onto a salvage track, each with its own benefits, each potentially scoring points towards that selected motive. Now, this game scales up as you progress. It's going to get more difficult. The ships that you draw, they're coming out of an opaque bag. And as your notoriety increases, as your score goes up and the event deck starts to deplete, you're going to get more powerful enemy ships being added into that bag and then potentially being added to the board. I could teach more about the mechanisms of the game, but anyone can crack open a PDF rulebook. So let's talk about what makes the game fun. First of all, Nemo's War gives you a, a like the open sandbox adventure feel that I love in a game. So many solo or co-op games, uh, you know, they have this sense of I do something, game pushes back. I do something. Mm-hmm. Game pushes back. Nemo's war will become progressively more difficult, but the pushback comes from how efficient I'm playing and how calculative I'm being in wagering resources to pass those tests when they arrive. You can't just throw around your resources to pass the tests. You know, if it's not something of great detriment to fail, you got to be timely. I really like that. This feels like an epic game. You know how when you play a game of I don't know, insert X solo or co-op game. We'll say Pandemic. It feels like a game with a very set structure. It's a a one-room house, and you have to find out how to live in it. That's fun. Don't get me wrong in the case of like a pandemic. But in that analogy, Nemo's War is more of a hotel. Beginning Mm. with the motive that you select, starting with the very first action you take, you have agency in your decisions, and it makes it tremendously replayable. Correct me if I'm
1: wrong here. I think Mm. you were saying about how this was very hard. Mm, that yeah, there is yeah. like a, another book that you open up and you go through and like, oh, you failed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It, well, it tells a
0: story. When you finish, you're going to check your score against an epilogue book that tells you how you performed. Uh, you can lose. You can have a win, a good win, or a, you know, you can have a triumphant victory. So depending on, on your score, it tells you what page to go to and each has its own little story. And unfortunately, I'm not very good at Neva's War. I, I mentioned, geez, you're <laughs> believe we've been doing this almost a year it was in a very early episode where i said you know what i feel like i do so good oh i killed all these ships i had a great game my war motive my score's way up there and i flip to the back and there's nemo pouting and it's like you will be forgotten to history (laughs) 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 this is a game with a good bit of output randomness you have tools to mitigate that randomness like i said Uh, but there is a dependence on rolling well that said, it's an adventure game. I'm okay with not knowing what's going to happen necessarily when I make a decision because there's there's exploration and adventure. You're not supposed to know what's, what's behind the closed door. You can play this as a numbers game. You can play it as a story game. All the tools are there to accommodate someone that wants to sit down and run the numbers and be the bean counter. But just the same, Nemo's War has all the story, the flavor text, and those wild, unpredictable occurrences that a story-driven gamer... I think they're going to like this one, too.
1: This has always been one that's been on my radar that I want to try because, oh, truthfully, yes, get to teach you one of my favorite movies of all time is still 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm. Anything that has to do with that movie, I adore. Captain Nemo, I adore. Everything about it. And whenever I saw that they came out with a game called Nemo's War, I was like, P- what? That's definitely one I want to give a try to. Oh, I'll
0: bring it. Yeah, this this game, it's a lot of fun. If you like uh, Robinson Crusoe, having an adventure-style game with that output randomness, or if you like Black Orchestra, even a game that gives you tension and theme while also challenging you to use your brain, Adventures, you're going to like Nemo's War.
1: I still have to say that the Nautilus from the uh, Disney movies is still one of the greatest vehicles ever created that has been put on film. I, I don't I, think I, I ever saw that.
0: Wait, they made oh. a Nautilus?
1: Oh my god, yes. I went. I, that was my big thing whenever I went to Disney World. Getting to go ride on a full-size Nautilus in the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea ride. That was spectacular.
0: Scott, I understand you had the chance to kick some solo time. Kick some solo yes. time. That's the dumbest thing I've ever said.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I I wouldn't put that in your lexicon of things to say okay, later. on. let's
0: let's let's backtrack. Scott, I understand you had the chance to do a little solo gaming. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: Well, I got a Kickstarter in. And this Ooh. Kickstarter was a rather interesting one in that you didn't actually pay for the game. You mm-hmm. just paid for the shipping. Now, how they're making money on this, I don't really know. But they did, and they have a second edition coming out in November. Oh, that's and the trick. What First
0: I'm... dose is free because then you'll keep coming uh, back. They want to get you hooked.
1: This is a game called Clash of Decks, and this is designed by Leandre Proust and published by Grams Edition, Gram Edition. We'll take it. It's something French. I'm not sure exactly. It's a simple, tiny little game. You have 32 cards, well, actually 34 cards in this little deck box, Mm -hmm. and in this, you have two cards that are bridges. Now, the whole idea is that you put the bridges out and you are two different mages fighting each other over these bridges. All right. Now then, you will deal out four cards. These cards will be different creatures, incantations, strong creatures, weak creatures, cheap creatures to put out. If you know how to play magic, a lot of things on here are very similar. A lot to of magic.
0: similarities. Yeah.
1: You have the mana cost that's up in the top corner, so you need to use that much mana in order to summon a creature. You have different powers that are in the middle, but since this is a French game and they want to get it out to as many languages as possible, they just use different symbols. So there's not a lot of writing on these cards at all. And on the bottom, you will have the attack value and the defense value. Mm -hmm. So your deck, whenever you're playing, are eight cards, and a fort. That's it. You have nine cards. That's your deck that you're going to be playing with. Each time that you go, you start off with six mana. So Mm -hmm. you play, you can put out cards up to that amount. As you're playing, you set up on one side of the bridges, your opponent sets up on the other side of the bridges. Your opponent, in this case, is the AI. Mm -hmm. So you get those eight cards out of this. Your opponent, the AI, has 24 cards. You'll just randomly pull up the top card, put it out there that you're going to be fighting against. Very simple AI, but still there's a lot of strategy that you're doing with this. As far as whenever you're playing this, do you want to put out something that is very strong and will stick around but can't attack right away? Or do you want to put something out that's weak that will be able to attack right away? You can play the whole game in maybe about 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about it is you can play it against the AI or you can play it against someone else. Like I said, you have the 32 cards. So there's a lot of replayability. And then with the new one coming out in November, you're going to get another 32 cards. That's going to build up your cards that you can draw from. You know, talking in the past on different episodes, I like small profile games. Little games you can pull out, play 10, 15 minutes, Mm -hmm. and then it's done. Take them whenever you're going out to a restaurant and you're waiting for your food. You can play a little game whenever you're waiting. This one fits right into it. And I would say if you're at all interested in it, YouTube, they have different videos on it. Take a look at it. It takes five minutes really to learn, 15 minutes to play. Great little game. Stick the deck in your back pocket. You're ready to play anywhere you go to. So Clash of Decks, cool little game.
0: I was glad you showed me this one. I was really intrigued by the two player version of it. It absolutely evokes the Magic the Gathering feel, but a very, very closed system. There's no deck building here. It only has like five or six symbols, at least in this base set. And yet the decisions are meaty. It's it's that simple rule set, deep play kind of game. Yeah, I could see breaking this out if I have, uh, say, a three- or four-player game day and one of them is able to come over an hour early. Yeah, I could play this a few times. Excellent little game. I still don't understand how it's free, uh, I mean,
1: especially with shipping
0: right now. But, hey, did you say that this is available on Steam or on, on an app form?
1: Uh It's on Board Game Arena, actually. Oh. Uh, so that's on there. I might have to put it up there and put it out. I know we have a little group for us on there. I might have to put that up and some challenge some of the adventurers.
0: Yeah, shoot us a message on Facebook, or uh, if you're in the guild, just you know maybe we'll make a forum. If you want to play a game against us, uh, we'd be glad to teach it. It's quick enough. Yeah, let's do it.
1: Yeah, sounds like a good time.
0: Scott, we still have adventures on the horizon and the top five. Are you still with me? We're doing all right? We're, We're doing stretch, amazing tell You, what let's take a break here while the
1: music's uh, playing. I'm gonna go outside and get some fresh air. Sounds good, brave adventurers. Mondo Games has joined our party. Get 10% off your purchase with Mondo Games using promo code LEVELUP. L-E-V-E-L-U-P. You can go straight to their website or just click the Mondo button on our homepage at levelupgamepodcast.com. Want to expand your options in Unmatched? Enjoy a solo game of A Gentle Rain. Or maybe you're getting fired up for The Thing, Infection at Outpost 31. Don't just score some loot. Get 10% off with promo code LEVELUP. Now, looking into the future, there's always new games that are coming around. And since we've been doing this, we've been very, very lucky to get sneak peeks at different games that are coming up. So, our little Adventures on horizon what was it you got to try? A
0: couple. Let's start with a big one. This is called resurgence uh our friend jimmy who you finally had the chance to meet yesterday and yes. he was excited to meet you more than actually hang out with me he's quickly become a close friend of the show and he, he messaged me the other day uh, we messaged each other back and forth all the time about games that we're playing or considering and what's coming out and he messaged me a picture and said that we should talk more about this game on the show and the pic looked interesting enough so i did a little bit of digging and i messaged the designer stan kordonski and i was like wait Stan Kronoski, I think I know that name, so I looked it up. This is the guy that did Dice Hospital and Rorick, Lockup and Old West Empresaria. Like He's got some pedigree going oh, on. Oh, yeah. Turns out he messaged me back and he invited Ooh. me to a teach of a playthrough of his upcoming game, Resurgence. And you know what? Quite frankly, I think that qualifies as a
1: podcast level up. Oh, most definitely. Definitely doing that. I mean, if you have the designer c- contacting you, that's an awesome level up. I
0: like to think that Stan got off of the, the, the teach whenever he did this and was like, wow, the level up guy. Talk to me. I just leveled up. <laughs> <laughs> so it is resurgence. Thematically, you're in a post-apocalyptic Russia. You make up a clan of survivors who are rummaging and scraping things together in an effort to reestablish society. And the other players, of course, then are other factions trying to do the same thing. At its core, Resurgence is a mashup of bag building and worker placement. Think Orléans meets Yido. Mm. Mm. Then that's... I could end it right there. If you you have played Orléans and Yido, then you know exactly what this game's bringing to the table. You begin the game with four basic workers plus two upgraded workers in your bag. And throughout play, you can unlock 12 more upgraded workers, three of each of the four different kinds. As you might imagine, the upgraded workers... They're going to act in similar fashion to the base workers, but they get a higher benefit based on the action spots that you place them. And in mm-hmm. fact, there are some worker placement spots that the basic guys can't even go to. You can only use a specific upgraded worker, like a scientist, for example. Now, each turn, you randomly pull four workers from your bag. Follow me here, Scott. The main board, you've got two different regions, plus you have your own complex, like like a hideout, All right. your player board. These three areas are where you can place your workers. So when you get your four workers from the bag, you have a screen covering your allocations, as in where am I going to place them. Uh, If I wanted uh, three guys to go to the the upper west side of the board, I'll put them on this section. If I want some people to go into the complex, I'll put them over here. That way, and in that fashion, if there are four spots available in one area of the board in a three-player game, Mm -hmm. I can put all four of my guys there. But what if you put two there and Mike put two there? Well, in turn order, I'm going to end up with a couple of leftover guys that aren't going to get to do anything. It's all covered by a screen. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and what this does, it forces you to think out your entire turn ahead of time, which can become tricky as other people put their workers on spots that you might have planned to do. Much like we were talking about with Dune, with with Tom, that is a factor here. Now, as you might expect, a lot of spaces that you're going to visit will give you resources. That's the core of most worker placement games. And these resources do various things, including missions, which are a primary way of getting victory points. Remember I said it ties into Yed a little bit Mm -hmm. so let's look at some of the other factors of the game and and what some of the other spaces allow for at the top of the board this is cool you have a row of survivor cards and these are folks that you can run into while you're out in the rubble they not only come with a once per round ability but they also provide you with an upgraded worker to add to your bag so you get to improve your bag plus you get to, to basically add some asymmetry between yourself and the other players because you have that character right You have your own complex as well. Like I said, it's your hideout. At the start of the game, you only have access to one of the dozen spaces that are are available on it. So placing a building action spot will unlock one of those worker placement areas on your complex. And as you progress, like the stuff on floor number two, floor number three, you have to meet certain thresholds in order to unlock those. So there's very much a feeling of progression in the game, not in your overall power, but in what's available to you. They also have an area from which you can acquire new missions, which obviously is going to be pivotal, because like I said, that's a way that you could score points. Now, the game has an event deck from which only one card is drawn each round, and the game lasts just six rounds, at the end of which, high score wins.
1: How gamey was it to allocate your workers at the start of the turn?
0: Um, you know what? I, I think Stan actually made this a lot more We'll say gamey than it was in something like viticulture or dinogenics, because normally in a worker placement game, you're allocating your workers and it's relatively simple. Okay. I know I want this spot. Yeah. Ah, he took it. Okay. I know what my next option is. And this is like, okay, I want three spots in that area but I don't think I'm going to be able to get all three because this spot's juicy for everyone. right? So I'm going to assume that I'm not going to get that, or if I take that, then Jim is going to take that spot. So you ha- there's it's not an AP kind of thing. You're not going to run into analysis paralysis, but you do have to put a lot more consideration into what do the other players want when you're determining where you're going to allocate your workers to because you don't want to do it. You don't want to overdo it for one area. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. With building your bag, did you Mm -hmm. find that it was changing a lot during the game?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. And I think like a game like Dune Imperium or review game today, you know, you can pursue that in two different ways. In a deck builder, your deck can be made to feel very different at the end of the game compared with the start. And in this, you can make it very different. If you play a game where you're trying to bring survivors into your complex, well, yeah, you're going to have a lot of upgraded workers as play goes on. On the other hand, if you're just trying to churn out missions real quick, uh, maybe you don't. That's an area where you have some agency.
1: Okay. This sounds cool. I like this. Now, mm-hmm. not everyone has the ability to play with the design or anything. So is this going to be on Kickstarter or is it going to be retail? What's What's happening with this?
0: The plan is Kickstarter in early November, somewhere within eh, like the next week after this air. Stan said, I want to have it around November 10th, but I don't have a solid date yet. But you can say early November. And this is a game that's going to come with wooden workers, linen finishes, a mini expansion, and a solo mode all in the box. So, adventurers, keep your eye on Kickstarter. This
1: guy's got pedigree, and this is a very, very fun game. I'm backing it. Sounds awesome. I see something else on the Adventures on Horizons on the show notes here. Yes, sir. Hand of Destiny? What's Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Let's do it. The
0: Hand of Destiny, designed by Joe Clipfell and published by Barrett Publishing. This is the first in the Realm of Shadow series, which appears to be a trilogy of small deck games. And what I mean when I say that is like the whole uh, 18-card game, like an entire board game made out of 18 cards. That's what we have going on here. At the start of a game of Hand of Destiny, you choose a character card, and the characters each have six abilities, and you have several different characters to choose from. And you have three bosses to pick, putting one of them, the one that you want to face, at the bottom of the wave of monsters that you'll be encountering. And you set up that wave simply by shuffling the cards. There's there's two per card on the front and on the back. So each card represents four different monsters that you can encounter. Now, this stack of monsters, along with your abilities, are held in your hand. Yes, this is a game that can be held in your hand and played in your hand, like, um, like Palm Island. But in this case, you're doing a dungeon crawl.
1: Perfect. I love it already.
0: Now, actually playing the game consists of utilizing a few sideways strength cards in order to defeat the monster who's on top of the monster stack, or in this case, in the front of your hand. So if you're up against a monster with a health of 10, you can take two of your strength cards with, say, power 6 and 4 to defeat it. There we go. The strength cards that you used, they got to go to the back of your hand. They're They're done. They're exhausted while the defeated monster goes sideways and is now in your pool of attacks. So, as is, we have a pretty simple game, but Joe, spice things up for us. First of all, most monsters that you're going to encounter have an ability, like a trigger whenever it shows up at the front of your hand, for example. Second, remember that abilities card that you have with uh, six different abilities for your character? Uh It has some static abilities, but it also has exhaustible abilities, which basically when you use them, you're going to tuck that text portion of the card That has that ability behind the front of the stack so that you can't see that text. That shows that it's used. And these abilities also represent your health points. So as you take damage, you're going to be tucking other abilities behind the front card in your hand. Representing that you're losing health, but also losing your capacity to deal with more monsters. Now if you can't defeat a monster, or you just want to let it go by, you got to take damage. Which uses that mechanic of hiding your abilities as I just went over. Now eventually at the bottom of the stack you'll confront the boss and ideally you'll beat it is a wave one boss whenever you start up the game which means you're showing just one portion of the card again remember every card has two things on the front two things on the back so the wave one boss is on the top wave two on the bottom then you flip that card over It's wave three and wave four you defeat your wave one boss all right time to gear up for wave two. You get some gold for defeating the boss, which you can use for purchasing weapons or healing potions and whatnot at the Merchant. Yes, an 18-card game has a Merchant included. You're trying to see how far you can make it in the Hand of Destiny, or you actually win the game if you can defeat the boss at the end of Wave 4. Now, Scottish, point out that you can expect to have some symbols to learn. Nothing too complicated, but don't make the mistake of thinking that this is a simple little game. It's just got a small footprint.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: There is a learning curve to Hand of Destiny, and it's going to take a few tries to see some improvement in your play, in your dungeon delving. With that small footprint, as you might expect, aside from an overview in the rulebook, there isn't really a story being told as you play, aside from maybe the one that you make up in your head. So if this all sounds familiar, perhaps it's because Joe Klipfell is also the designer of Gloom Holden, which we talked about a while back. And it was actually at the top of the BGG hotness for a little bit, uh, I think it was over summer. Yes. I'm glad to see that the Hand of Destiny is every bit as robust a solo game as Gloom Holden was. It's definitely different. You don't have the map cards. You don't have to worry about where you are in relation to the monsters, aside, of course, from the ones going to be in the front of your hand. But Hand of Destiny packs in all those beefy decisions that we might expect from someone who created gloomholden i've played a good bit already still haven't won yet but it's on the table at the ready for another few tries this weekend Uh, it's quick it's challenging and i'll tell you what man being so compact we've all seen posts on like facebook about what game can i play during my flight or my train ride etc easy answer hand of
1: destiny hey that sounds pretty awesome there i like this once again though when can people get a hold of this game? What's what's happening with it? Yeah, this one's coming to Kickstarter
0: November 9th. That same day, we have our Megapulse episode going live. So here's one more reason to circle that date on your calendar. November 9th,
1: The Hand of Destiny. That is fantastic. Great, great stuff. Hand of Destiny.
0: Well, Scott, we've got to uh, finish up the episode. We'll do a quick top five and then level up. What do you think?
1: That sounds good to me.
0: Adventures every 10, ti- well, ep- not every 10 episodes. Scott, we haven't been doing this every 10. It's been every no. time we have 10 reviews, typically that we've played together. We're going to go over our most recent 10 reviews that we've done, and we're going to pick out our top five. We do this so that you have an idea after listening to the episodes. Okay, which ones, you know, they liked seven or eight of these. Which ones are the, the true standouts? What are the best games they had the opportunity to talk about? And sometimes, Scott, you and I differ with these so let's go over the list we did cryo senjutsu battle for japan i put dog park in there scott i know you didn't play dog park but it's an opportunity Uh viticulture quests and cannons catacombs grand austria hotel carnegie unmatched and Yido. so scott from five to one we're going to talk about the best games amongst those 10 you want to lead us
1: all right My number five, which I'm thinking might be a little bit higher on yours, is Carnegie. We got a chance to play on Board Game Arena, and there is a lot going on in this game. I mean, you're working with different charities, with getting salesmen put out all across the country, trying to figure out how you're going to build your building, get what offices in there that are going to help you accomplish all your goals. I mean, there is a ton going on in this game. Almost to the point of almost too much. I mean, it goes right up to that line and then stops. Carnegie was a lot of fun. Still go back to that every now and then on Board Game Arena. Play it solo just to get an idea. Get my uh, mind rules going in fresh. A different way. Yep. So Carnegie is number five of mine. My number five is Grand Austria Hotel.
0: You get the opportunity to run a cafe and hotel in Vienna. Uh, All the while, you are trying to work with guests, bring them into the cafe, work with your resources. The finances are tight, all in an effort to get these guests into your hotel. You need to prepare rooms. You want to close the doors. there's, There's ways to go about it. It just scratches the euro itch, and it's got a nice classic look to it. My number five, Grand Austria Hotel.
1: My number four, possibly a game to introduce to new players. That is Unmatched. Unmatched is a game where you're playing different, actually real uh, characters or imaginary characters. You can put Bruce Lee against Deadpool now. You can do... Dracula versus Sherlock Holmes. You can do Buffy Summers from Buffy the Vampire Slayer against Alice in Wonderland. There's all sorts of <laughs> different things here. And it's just <laughs> something that you play, and it's just funny, and you laugh, and you have a good time with this game. It's a simple game, fun game from Restoration Games. They're constantly coming out with new additions to the, uh, the game section here, unmatched. Let's not
0: forget that Unmatched is carried by Mondo Games, and you can get 10% off by using promo code level up.
1: You are correct.
0: <laughs> I forgot about that. That is I'm awesome. a shill. My number four was Dog Park. Scott, I know you didn't have the opportunity to play this one. I did this review uh, by myself. Dog Park, uh, I drew a lot of comparisons to Wingspan. You're drafting dogs, and they're going to provide you with all sorts of benefits as you take them for walks and finish the walks. Just a, a really pleasant game, a very simple rule set with a whole Bunch of variables and fuse. It's going to make it very easy for your gamer friends to get invested in the play while also simple to introduce to newer gamers. My number four
1: was Dog Park. All right. My number three was one that I was very nervous about whenever you brought it out, and that was Yido. We played it, and I was like, right away the next week, I'm like, bring Yido back. I want to play it again. And yes. had an absolute blast playing this. Just different things about worker placement and getting secret things and getting all these recipes to build stuff. There was so much going on in that. And with the, what is it? The thief that goes around. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's the jailer going around. The jailer. The whole thing with the Jailer going around and planning for that, hopefully doing table talk to mess someone's thoughts up on it so that they put it right in front and the Jailer catches them next turn. It's wonderful. Had a great time playing it. Guido. My number three is
0: Catacombs, third edition. Catacombs, the disc-flicking, dungeon-delving game. You know what? This is not one that I think I would rank high if I played it every week. I think it's because I set it up almost like an event. I get to play it once or twice a year. And when I do, it's it, we treat it as a beer and pretzels game. But the trash talking happens. There's always an epic shot. There's always laughter whenever we play. It does exactly what I
1: want it to do. And that's why my number three is Catacombs. My number two is Cryo. Now, this was one that I had bought, and it sat on my uh, shelf of shame for a while. Didn't really get into it. Finally, I'm like, I'm going to learn how to play this. Played it. I had a blast playing this game. It was a lot of fun sending your drones out, picking up different resources in order to save your pods and everything, get them down in the caves off the uh, surface of the frozen planet. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I've even looked up, I found solo rules to it. So hopefully sometime Ooh. this weekend, I'll be playing a solo game of Cryo. My number two is Kickstarter
0: Smash Success Senjutsu, where you take samurai and you're battling each other in a tactical cart, well, a car driven tactical combat game. Just a beautiful production. Uh, the designers are Totally awesome. We, You know what? I feel like we could all be friends if they lived closer.
1: <laughs> yes, yes.
0: <laughs> but a fantastic game. Uh, it's, fan, it's absolutely phenomenal one-on-one, and I can see where adding more players is going to make it that much more chaotic. They made us a stretch goal. I mean, the, the green – the jade card for the monk – that only is available because they threw us a bone and got us in on their campaign. So, you know what? This is a game that I'm always going to have really close to my heart. And it is my number two from amongst these ten, Senjutsu.
1: Well, since I am King Scott here, I get to break the rules because I have a king before my name. So, That's true. it's my number one is a two-parter. One part is Senjutsu for a lot of the same reasons you said there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fun with this, with the tactical combat with it. There's a lot of feeling with the facing that I get with playing Battletech. That's a lot of fun. Cannot wait to get my copy because, yeah, I backed it. I went all in everything on that game. But my number one is Grand Austria Hotel. Now, it seems kind of silly doing that because it's an older game. But the reason for it is... It reminded me why I got into this hobby to begin with, with the wooden components, the silly artwork, nothing really all that spectacular. It's just a fun game, a simple game to get into, and got me back to the roots of what games I used to play oh, whenever I got into It the nostalgia this. bone. It did. It definitely did. So that's why I have to say Grand Austria Hotel is my number one pick.
0: And I do want to point out as we round out these 10, I don't think that there was a bad game in the bunch. This was a really hard, like I could switch yeah. those five and put in the other five and come up with a really good reason why I put it where I do. The number 10 game on my list of these 10 was very, very good. I, I don't feel like we had a dud this go. No, no, not at all. Well, got my number one this go around for the most recent 10 was Yido. I oh. love Yido. You know what? It's There's something about the game, especially having this deluxe version now with the beautiful pieces and the increased variability with the various event decks to choose from. Uh, I love introducing it to people. And sometimes it takes a couple rounds before it clicks and they go, oh, wow. But you know what? A lot of folks do exactly what you did. We finished the game. And they're like, let's play that again next time we meet up. Uh, mm-hmm. it's been a hit for me i love the theme i love the artwork the strategy behind the game i even like that it's a lengthier game because i feel like decisions matter more that way my number one from these 10 was yido but i do have to say this was a hard list to come up with 10 I've, case in point you had carnegie unmatched and cryo on yours that weren't on mine and you know what they all belong there you said oh i think carnegie is gonna be higher grand austria could have turned into carnegie for me catacombs could have turned into into cryo i mean it this is a good 10. This is a good 10. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. I mean, we've been blessed with being able to get these games and play such high quality games. Awesome time here.
0: Maybe when we do our one year episode, which is right around the corner, maybe we'll oh. do a top 10 or a top 15 of all the games that we reviewed this year. That'd be a fun one. Le- Everybody yeah. does their year in review or something like now. Maybe we'll just that'll be our one episode where we indulge in a top ten for ourselves. Sounds like Once a, plan a year to me.
1: I like it. <laughs> I like it a lot.
0: What do you say? We talk about how we leveled up since
1: we last spoke. That sounds good. Uh, my level up is actually a level back with a level up. Mm. So my level back is, well, a level I'm going Packs Unplugged. Oh. So I'm doing that coming up here in December. So I'm looking forward to that. And I was going to be working with Berkey with Game Toppers. Unfortunately, But for good reasons, he won't be there because he will be busy with the fulfillment of their last Kickstarter. Hey, well done, Berkey. I'll be getting my legs for my game topper, and I'll be able to take that table anywhere I go. So I'm excited about that. The level back is I'm not going to be working with Berkey. The level up, though, is that we have plenty more time for games, meeting a lot of adventurers, getting a chance to hang out, have a good time, lots of laughs. And I cannot wait for PAX Unplugged coming up in December. Oh, it's going to be fun. Yes, it is. Most definitely going to be a good time. Now, how did you level up?
0: Mine is simple. Reconnecting with an old friend. I got a buddy who I call Evil Bob. He came to both meetups, and uh, I actually got the chance to invite him to the Twilight Imperium Day, and he made it out. Scott, I haven't hung out with Evil, but he was one of the guys that I played magic with when I lived an hour away from here 15 years ago. Like, I probably <laughs> hadn't seen him for 15 or 20 years. He saw the meetups, showed up at one. I was like, no way. Showed up at the next one. And then I was trying to put together, like, you know, that whole profiling uh, who to introduce into games. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I bet Evil Bob, he's a magic player. He, he knows deep gaming concepts. I bet he can handle this Twilight Imperium game. And he came out and I thought, man, there's something really cool in this hobby where you can you can reconnect with someone that that you used to game with. And it's like we didn't miss a beat. You know what I mean? We're we're teasing each other and having a good time. So getting to reconnect with Evil Bob was a lot. And you know what? I came to realize Evil Bob infers that there's a good Bob, and I don't know who good Bob is. I just know Evil
1: Bob. Well, it's funny thing is, because (laughs) I know an Evil Bob as well, too. And he has Evil Bob's miniature painting. painting. No. Evil Bob that I know is, uh, he has Evil Bob's miniature painting. So he does painting of miniatures, historical miniatures and everything. So... That's huh. my evil Bob that I know. So there are two evil Bobs out there in the world. <laughs> we we can never allow them to be in the same room. No. Two evil Bobs out there? No. It can never happen. They can never be in the same place at the same time.
0: Thank you so much for joining this adventure of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. There you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes. Learn more at adamhaynesmusic.com. And remember, you can spend another night on the sofa, or you can get some friends together, get some adventures on the table, and level up.